0: This is a production, is a production of Dirty Mo Media. Yeah, I got the plan,
1: I got the fan, I got the keys, I get the work, I ain't the man, you know what I'm saying, so leave it to me, cause I get it first. That's jury and Caledega.
0: Episode 402, Mike Davis, Dale Earnhardt Jr. in the Bojangle studio. What's up, buddy?
2: What's happening? Not much. You good? Um,
0: Yeah, pretty good, I guess. Good mood today? I mean, you know. Good. We'll see.
2: We'll see. It could go either way. I'm going to try to keep you there. It's time for another
0: episode of the Dale Jr. Download, and we've got a great guest today, Ned Yost. Mm. Ned Yost is a World Series winning uh, manager and coach in the Major League Baseball and a great friend of my dad's. And apparently they spent a lot of time together hunting and doing all kinds of stuff and dad was a big Braves fan and connected with several players back in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, made friendships with a lot of them would go visit the team and so forth. And so he's going to tell us about that. And Earnhardt stories,
2: man. Well, I think I that Love heart stories. I,
0: Earnhardt
2: Stories. That's what it is. This is the Earnhardt Story episode.
0: All right. Well, you know, we think that we've heard them all, but I don't think we've heard any of these. So uh, Ned's going to share a lot of specific things with us, and um, I think we're really going to enjoy this. So, you know, some of the stories we've, you know, when we hear the Earnhardt Stories, um, typically we've heard like a version of it. Right, and we get somebody in here to kind of clean it up a little bit, or tell tell their side. with well, this is uh, this will be new because we haven't heard any of these stories.
2: That's right. That's right. But
0: Ned Ned has a, a incredible life of his own, outside of the Earnhardt connection. I mean, you know, he, and and when we interviewed him for this show, um, I get the impression that he really wants to tell his uh, his experiences with Dad. But we also really gonna have to we're gonna have to Implore him to share with us some of his own experiences as a World Series winning manager in Major League Baseball. That's it's
2: amazing. We don't get that opportunity. No, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is you know we are um, a NASCAR or racing or motorsports oriented podcast, but man, it's fun. Fun for me when we ever we step outside that box every once in a while for the right reasons, and this feels feels like a good one. So um, let's get some dirty air. Dirty air. You got it. Dirty air is brought to you by Filter Time. There's no better way to deal with dirty air than with a filter subscription service that takes care of the hassle and takes that out of buying air filters for your home. They're delivered right to your door. So every time they show up, you know when to change them. Go to filtertime.com and subscribe now.
3: But this is our dirty air.
0: Dirty air.
4: So let's go. Oh.
0: So at Talladega this weekend, pretty uh, pretty busy. A lot of a lot of storylines, a lot of topics, even leading into the race. Uh, a lot of conversation and concern about um, the race car. We had a lot of uh, you know guys talking about the hits being hard, and um, man, that has really been a big you know. If you haven't heard about this, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. You're not paying attention. Um, but apparently, um, the drivers are are absolutely sure without without question, that the car is too, way too stiff. And um, when you actually dive in and look at the design of the, the car itself, you can kind of see how that absolutely could be the case. And we're having guys that are – so here's, here's my opinion. So we're having more people step up and say, I've, gotten, I've, I've got a concussion. And those are the uh, – got Kurt Busch and Alex Bowman, who's out of the race car, this year alone. With, con- with a concussion. And those are the only two we know about, right? Uh, we are – there is th- – th- let's not fool ourselves, right? Drivers will get a concussion and race with it. And would not shock me if several of these guys either got a concussion unknowingly and got back in the car or knew that they had, a, you know, suffered some sort of a concussion – in a crash and continue to race and so but we only know about these two and that's uh that's a big step up in percentages of people speaking out about having a problem in a certain in in any particular year and so we absolutely have a problem with this race car they're gonna you know nascar is gonna fix it they need to um you know they need to get the back of the car but it wouldn't hurt for them to focus on the rest of the vehicle as well, but get the car where it absorbs more impacts. Denny went right into the media and he went uh, scorched earth like <laughs> he you know said things like there needs to be new leadership, change the leadership. he then um, you know clarified on Sunday he didn't mean that they need to fire Steve Phelps. he just feels like that the people that are in charge of this particular design on the car uh, failed uh, to see some very critical things as the car was being put, you know, car was being tested and all these things, right? And maybe he is telling the truth. Maybe he's backtracking a little bit. Maybe he got a little bit too, uh, you know, too personal or too frustrated in his media session uh, and he doesn't really want Phelps out of there. Phelps doesn't have anything really to do with designing the car, but. Um, I mean, these type of things do fall on those the shoulders of the people at the top. Sure. Uh, Chase Elliott also backs his you know backs all this up. All the drivers I think would admit that this is a problem. But Chase Elliott went into the media as well and said that um, the new car is taking a step backwards in regard to safety. And um, I think that's a fair statement. So they made this you know the car the car is designed very well in terms of being a you know being a, being a race car the independent rear suspension the 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 the, 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 the tra- transaxle when you look at this car i mean it's it, they they created this thing from scratch but it can't you know it can't take a it take, can't take a crash very well they did crash test the crap out of this thing but i remember way back when um William Byron hit the wall in a test at California and got out and said that was pretty uh that was a really, really hard hit. That comment kinda stuck with me and a lot of other people. And the drivers have been talking about it all year long. And so now finally I think it's gotten to a point to where with all of the crashes and hits that we saw with the tire issues at Texas, drivers now know that it could be their it could be their Heads being concussed any minute, any moment, right I think that I think the it was a concern. We go to Texas, we have a lot of tire issues, we have a lot of guys hitting the wall backing into the wall, which is basically probably the worst way you can hit with this car, and now drivers are almost in a panic for NASCAR to help them right mm-hmm. they're they're going to the media because the media is kind of the last resort uh to get a, to get something done right to really get somebody's attention you really don't want to go to the media you want NASCAR to to react and things to get fixed without having to go to that go to that um situation but so a drive, when a driver feels like he's out of options and feels like he's not being heard or really has to have something done immediately or really needs to get his message across quickly urgently they go into the media and they overspeak right you when you get into the media and you're going you're gonna to try to, when you're wanting to be heard, when you're wanting somebody to understand this is something important to you, and you're a driver, you go to the media, you overspeak. You, you pour it on thick, mm. right? Because so that, that's your only shot. Mm-hmm. Standing there in your media session, you're going to get this point across. And so you kind of overdo it a little bit with the hope that this doesn't fail, this, this attempt to get attention or get, get this message across is not going gonna, gonna to work. I think that, uh, you know, that was a little bit of what Denny was doing. It was a tactic to get this message out to the public so that the fans and everybody would understand the severity of the situation and the importance of, of some action. And so with that said, I mean, NASCAR has been working on a new rear clip for some time. They have, been wor- they have been understanding that this is a problem and have been trying to fix this for a while. But it's just not happening quick enough.
2: That's what I wanted to ask is that the there's pro- more media Internet. sessions and there are opportunities to fix the car quickly, right? You know, they're, in, and so there, they're continually in front of the media yeah. saying it. And
0: Well, the, the, there, there's a lot. One of the problems is the car is dangerous. If you back it into a wall... You, you, you're more than likely going to get a concussion than when you would in the old car. But that's, not a, that's not an exaggeration.
2: No, it seems accurate, yes. Yep.
0: And you want it changed right now.
2: Is that possible? No. Okay.
0: NASCAR can't change it right now. If they go in there and make adjustments to this car or cut bars out of it for, ne- for the next race and you go back it into the wall and bust the fuel cell and now you're burning your own fire. So, NASCAR has you know, they've been in this business a long time. They know that they they could create more problems or even more severe problems, uh believe it or not, uh, than a concussion by making the wrong move here. They have to make sure they get this right. They are in, they could be held liable if they were to make a mistake. Um and that's that that To Denny's point, all of this kind of does go back to the original design of the car. So there is a little bit of, you know, they want all this to crush, right? They want this back end to crush, right? So that's great. I mean, the old car did that. But this car's a little bit shorter in the back. There's not a lot of room between the bumper, the fuel cell, and there's really no room between the fuel cell and the transaxle. And And so the transaxle can puncture the fuel cell if you shove that fuel cell into the ground like with the old car it's going into that transaxle there is a steel plate between it but do you know for sure that it will protect you do you want to try it Do you want to be in that car nope when that fuel cell erupts nope and so if they make the back of the car to where it absorbs too much it could also you know you you get you get close enough to that fuel cell you burst the fuel cell, or something can protrude and, and, and puncture it, whether, you know, another race car or part or whatever. Some of these, you know, when you look at the back bumper of the car, you'll see these little struts, these aluminum struts that are, yep. that those could puncture
2: the fuel cell. Yeah. You know, you, That's all scary. It, it is, like, right. yeah.
0: yeah. So think about, uh, I remember at Bristol one time, Sterling Marlin and his team backed our car into the wall, uh, the number 22 Maxwell House car, Ford, Junior Johnson. Back the car into the wall, push the push fuel cell down, the, the, uh, the deck lid, and everything. To get the arrow back right, they set jack stands on the back, on, they set jack stands on the fuel cell, raised up the jack stands to hold the deck lid up, bungee corded all that into the car, right? Sent him back out on the racetrack, he spun out back into the wall again and shoved the, shoved the jack stand through the fuel cell, through the top of the fuel cell. A giant ball of fire. Turns yes. one into at Bristol. And uh, he gets out, uh, but it was a big, nasty thing. Chocolate Myers runs over there to pull him out of the car. It was a really, really big ball of fire. So when those fuel cells puncture, if you got a lot of fuel in there, it's going to be intense. And so they just have to get that right. And that, to me, is another, like, oh, well, (laughs) I want to, personally me, I want to go, well, damn it, you know, why did we have to, why did we have to go this far with this design? Why did this car have to be so far removed from what we were doing to begin with? Mm. Why did we have to jump to the other extreme? I mean, we've basically got a sports car mm-hmm. running around these ovals. A car designed for road courses now racing at mile and a half oval tracks. That's right. These, you know, This is an IMSA car, mm. pretty much. And the IMSA guys run their cars on road courses. They don't run around ovals with walls. They, right. don't, ba- they don't smash into walls right. every time they spin out. Um, and so that's a little frustrating for me personally. Me, me personally, I wish we hadn't went so far away from where we were uh, with, the, with the overall design of the car. But, and I'm, I agree with Denny to a point that the whole thing needs to be revisited in terms of being able to absorb impacts. When we look at the rear impacts, we need to fix that, of course. But we also wanna try to also improve side impacts, frontal impacts. Hey man, just because Cody Ware gets out of that car after a nasty head-on vicious impact at Texas, doesn't mean that, oh, well that checks that box. We don't need to really look in that area. If we find and learn and improve the rear, we need to take that understanding and everything we've got better and try to find other ways around the rest of the car to implement that same sort of understanding. You know, everybody has said, you know, the big talking point this weekend has been, well, you know, safety's a never-ending quest. If that is really your truth, then what you learn at the back of this race car when you fix what is obviously wrong, you apply it around the rest of the car as well because I don't like the side impacts. Mm. Kevin Harvick you know, has a side impact at St. Louis earlier in the year. Said it's the hardest hit of his career. Yep. So this thing is a tank from front to back.
5: AC Pro Recharge Kits make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience. And the AC Pro app offers clear, vehicle-specific instructions to help you get the job done in less than 10 minutes.
1: So pick up an AC Pro Recharge Kit at any store selling auto products and confidently restore your car's cold air yourself today. Be a pro with AC Pro.
0: The headrests don't even get me started. I don't. I never... Never like these big giant headrests that we have in these cars today. I don't know what the answer is on that. I do know that. that, So think about this headrest when you look at it. You know, uh, uh, you know somebody that's just never somebody that's never actually sat in a car or grabbed a hold of these headrests. You look at it and you go, well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, there's a lot of foam around you, right? Mm -hmm. This foam, it's it's like, it's like, uh, it's comfortable like a shoe. Absolutely not. Wow. It's hard as a rock. The foam that we use in these cars is a very, very hard, hard. It doesn't. It's not this nice. It's not like a you know roll of a toilet cushion. paper. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. It's not a pillow. It's hard, and almost you know as hard as this desk. In high impact moments, it does give a little bit. It does. T- it does dent, but in my opinion, you know, the the headrests can absolutely improved. We never focused on the back of the headrest. There's very little material between the actual carbon fiber surrounding hard shell and your helmet. We never looked at that and said that needs to be padded more. That needs to be softer. That needs to absorb better. We never did because the rear impacts were never really a problem. We had a ton of absorption absorbing energy in the bumpers and all the rear of the car would just crush away so the rear impacts weren't never an issue it was always that right front 45 30 degree angle hit that you were working on and that's why on the headrest they got they got wider and wider and the foam got wider and wider and more and more in just the right side we 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 would have as much as we could possibly fit on the left side without the headrest sticking outside the car But on the right side, we've got this, you know, we've got a foot of foam between us and the actual carbon surround. And so while that looks proper, I always felt like having my head in that headrest, it might as well be right up next to a roll bar. I mean, it's as hard as it, you know, it's, it's, it's hard foam. And so if you have a, you know, a 45 degree right front impact at 150 miles an hour, it is doing you some good, but it is not protecting you from an injury.
2: Certainly not protecting your brain from running into your your cranium. I mean, like that's bruising, that's concussions. Yeah, it's not.
0: And so that's always kind of been my problem with it is like, you know, yeah, I I mean, it's, it's, it's gonna protect me in a in a in a, in a in a short track you know 50 90 80 mile an hour wreck but in a big mile and a half track I really never loved having my head in that big freaking headrest as hard as that foam was because in those high you know 130 above in those type of crashes I mean I ain't I ain't I ain't want
2: my head up against that that's interesting and so never even thought about that
0: yeah. They're going to talk about the headrests a lot because, you know, they're they understanding with the rear impacts and the lack of material in the back of the headrests, that, that, this all needs to be revisited, right? This headrest thing needs – and get ready because the headrests are going to change a little bit. people They're going to start making some mandates on thickness of the foam in the back and all kinds of different things. So, you know, while they improve the back of these cars, they're going to ask the teams and the drivers to make uh, some adjustments as well to that surround. <coughs> And and they're going to start you know testing that and say hey this is what we have to have there to improve and now that's going to change that could change actually the cage of the car to be able to uh, cor- you know incorporate whatever that change in the headrest surround is <clears throat> to be able to get more material in the back the um but again you know you get into you know 130 or uh, you know I'm just guess you know, I'm just throwing a number out there when you get into a high speed collision you know I would rather in my head not be up against anything. And I know that's not the answer. I know that's not gonna save me from a concussion. We've had drivers have head injuries for as long as this sport's been around. And they don't ha- you don't have to bang into your, you, know, you don't have to hit your head on something to get a concussion. Just the quick motion that's right. of the car spinning around. Um, we've had injuries to drivers of cars just rotating, a quick rotation of a car can spin the brain inside the head and damage it. And so you don't have to have a a collision of your head into uh, that foam headrest to create this issue. But I think we got these headrests the way they look now, and we kind of quit working on it. We kind of quit trying, at least visually, looking at what the headrests look like we we haven't made that better Hmm. Uh, and i've never loved where we are right now with this surround this head this headrest surround a lot of drivers try to sneak them down so that when you do have an impact it's in the cheek area of the helmet i i mean honestly mike if you're trying not to get your head rung you're willing to take your risks with what that might do to your neck or whatever right um, you obviously in NASCAR, the officials will walk around when the drivers get in the cars. There's officials that are specifically walking around and looking at the hel- the helmet and the headrest and how they relate to each other. And they will go up to you and say, "You got to raise your headrest. It's too low. I don't like where it's at. It's way too low." And they'll tell you, and you have to get you have to get some new mounts and you have to get that headrest up. Mm-hmm. And I always tried to get mine down as far as I could, not only to be able to look visually over the right side of the headrest with my eyes so I could see the driver next to me on the racetrack, but I also felt like as I got that headrest down, then that my brain was in a better situation during a very high-speed impact. That my lower, the, the the my you know, my jaw, cheek, all of that would, would would be where the impact was, was was felt the most, and that would that would lessen the movement of of my you know what my that would lessen all that was happening inside my head with my brain in a very high in, high impact situation. <laughs> you know, um, this is a tough uh, this is a tough thing because I think we can get. This is fru- tough and frustrating for me because I think we can get a lot better there, in terms of the the physical build of the headrest, how the headrest functions, how it how it functions in a low speed plus a high speed crash. Um, when I and I'm and like I don't have the answers. Trust me. There's my and I understand my thinking is is flawed in some areas and. I've learned that it's flawed in some areas because in 2017, when I was going to come back and run that final year, uh, I sat down with NASCAR. I had a couple of NASCAR safety guys come into Junior Motorsports, and I was going to sit down with them and I was going to tell them this. And I did tell them this. I said, "You remember those old breakaway headrests? There, you know, that have a we'd had. It basically was a sheet of aluminum, and." It you know you let your it was strong enough that you could lay your head against it in the corner and race, but if you crashed, it would bend away. Your head would bend it away. The weight of your head in an impact would fold that out of the way. And we went away from those uh, back in the early 2000s or mid 2000s, and we started using these al- big heavy-duty aluminum surrounds. And then uh, we got you know we and, and that came right around the same time we started using the head and neck restraints. Which I think the Hans device is probably one of the most important devices that you'll put on uh, when you get inside a race car. So, in my thinking, I was going. I told NASCAR those those safety guys in this meeting on a on an off weekend uh, in the off season uh, before 2017. I said, I'm coming back for my final year. I'm gonna run this old style breakaway headrest. And I said, I know that's probably uh, sounds stupid to you because you you know you're you're head of safety and you've gotten so far away from those. But I think with this Hans device on my head, it's going to keep my head from flying off of my shoulders in a crash. And I really don't want to, you know, put my head up against the big giant headrest that we have that don't go anywhere, that don't move when you hit. I don't want to hit that anymore. And I want whatever – I want it to be strong enough to hold my head up in a corner so I can lean on it a little bit, save my neck muscles somewhat on a 500-mile race. But when I crash, I want that to get out of the way, and I want this Hans device to do the rest. Mm. And so – they they said no you know we're not going to allow you to have have that type of headrest but we will help you understand why the headrest you were using maybe wasn't functioning as well i think if you're a race car driver you want to really listen to this part because this made the most sense to me when when i was racing earlier in my career i wanted to be able to move my head around and be able to look left and look right and um, look at the uh... mirror and all those things inside the car and so to be able to really do that with with the hans on and all the clips and all the 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 all the uniqueness of the shape of a helmet um, you need a little room between your headrests on each side you know if it's a half inch maybe it's an inch whatever right you want to be able to be able to move around and so um, that gap right between my helmet when i put my helmet back in the surround if I had a little room on each side, that was no big deal to me. It allowed me to move my head freely. And in the corner, I'd lean up against the right side. And I really didn't care how much room that that meant there would be between the left side headrests and my helmet. There was a good gap there. You could put your hand back there. And uh, I learned that that was a massive problem in terms of uh, head injuries and high-speed crashes. And so when you you know, if you're leaning your head up against the right side of the headrest, and you hit the wall with the driver's side, your head goes flying at a high at a high rate of speed into the headrest on the left side, and there's an imp- there's an impact to the wall and an impact of your head into the headrest, and so it's a bam bam, and it's it's it it it, it spikes that number in terms of what your what your the G's your helmet you know in your head feel right, it really spikes. And so if you're blowing a right front tire and you're headed to the wall at a 45-degree angle with the right front of the car, your instinct is to pull away. Your instinct is to pull your head away. Uh, Corey LaJoy talked about this. He blew blew tires at the same place back-to-back days or something like that at Charlotte this year. He had back to back hits like in in within weeks. I think it was uh, I can't remember what the scenario was, but he crashed a car either two either either days within each other in the same scenario with the same right with the same tire issue. And he said the first time it happened he moved his head away from the impact. And so when he hit the wall, his head flew into the headrest. And so he gets this big spike and he felt it. And so when it happened again days later, he remembered that moment, and he put his head against – he leaned into the impact and put his head against the headrest. And so when the car hit, he said he felt much – he felt way less of the impact.
2: Wow. Well, there was one fewer impacts, right? I mean, first of all, he had it already – that is amazing.
0: And so, okay, so go back to this meeting in 2017 with NASCAR. I'm telling them I want those breakaway headrests. They're like, "Yeah, we're not going to let you do that. That's you know that's old, shit and we're never you know they're going to let we're not going to let one car in the garage have those, and everybody be wondering what the hell's going on." But I'll tell you how to fix the headrests you got. They said make that make that area between your helmet and and the and the and the padding as little as possible. Literally, it should be touching, if not tight, on both sides. Mm. So when you put your head back into it it's touching and it's, it's there, right? So when you crash, your helmet is against this padding and you can't, you can't move from it or be, you know, you can't run into it or be slammed into it. And so that made a lot of sense to me. And so that's what I did. I made my helmet really tight in the headrest. I thought it would annoy me because I wouldn't be able to turn and look and move my head around and be able to see. That's not true. Once you get up to speed and you're racing along, oh, you're moving your head. You know, you're looking around, and, and you can, even in that tight, confined space, you forget all about that once you're up to speed. Hmm. And you can look, and, and, you know, your head does kind of slide around in the helmet somewhat. So, there, I mean, there's plenty of movement. I didn't notice that it wasn't a problem. I went that whole season. I had crashes. I had bumps. I had bangs. And I had no problems. It helped a lot. Now, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a perfect solution. It's not the answer. I'm just saying it helps. When I watch these guys race, on Sunday. I see a lot of guys with a lot of helmets that got a lot of room between them and the and the and the headrest. And I don't want to really call any drivers out, but I'm telling you, if you're a race car driver and you're listening to this show, get that helmet out, put it in that headrest around and look at the room between there and how much your helmet can bounce around in there. Wow. All right. We've had drag, we've had in, we've had injuries and even deaths in drag racing from the the tire shake right and the head the that, head being kind of banged around that's right right that's right as uncomfortable it is to talk about these things you know apply that same sort of understanding to the head surround that we have in our cup cars or our race cars and try to get your head to where it's not able to be bounced around inside of that space and so <clears throat> you know that was one of the things that that's one of the things that I think we could apply more critically to a lot of the cars that come across the you know the tech shed. I think that we could, you know, be a little more stringent in time in terms of hey, we're going to have some specifications here. We're going to have some expectations here of how your helmet fits in this headrest. Uh, if they're going to redesign the back of these headrests or try to apply a new way of thinking and, and improve um, what the driver experiences, um, I think we could you know really kind of bring in tighter parameters in terms of you know what these drivers are doing how much freedom they have to be able to you know have their own creativity and way their helmet and headrest you know work together so anyhow kind of got
2: in the weeds there but i'm glad you did i think it Im- needed to be said and i just wanted to hear it. from your mouth <laughs> to these drivers ears if anything happens the, having drivers listen to this yeah. is too important not to be said and i'm yeah. i'm i'm First of all, I just learned a lot about being inside a cockpit of a race car. But second of all, I think that you bring up some very valid and things, some, some practical things that can be applied yeah. until there's a bigger fix to the overall car.
0: Yeah. I, I, I wonder, you know, I would love to know in in the scientific, you know, scientific testing that they do right in the in the when they sled test a crash and the you know, they have the dummies and all those things. I'd love to know. If we had some sort of a headrest that did break away, what does that do to the brain? If the if the head, if you got a head restraint on and that's going to save you from a basal skull fracture, right? But we have the headrest allow for the head the head to break, you know, the head to move in in certain directions. Say at a you know a 90 mile an hour crash and under, this headrest wouldn't fail, but it at a higher rate, the headrest would, you know, would would have a breakaway function to it so that the 150-mile-an-hour crash wouldn't have, you know, your brain crashing into your skull. Uh, that, to me, is where I want to Im- – I wish we could improve. Mm. And I don't know what the answer is to that. But, like, when you pop a tire and hit the wall at 180-mile-an-hour or 150 miles an hour – can we figure out what's better than what we got?
2: Yeah, something that engages at a higher rate of impact that 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 dissipates that energy and dissipates that emotion. Yeah. So you know, it doesn't necessarily like it, you know an airbag yeah. how it it engages when yeah. you hit something, but then maybe you know fender benders it doesn't even yeah. you know doesn't engage. I know
0: this is really so. Uh, this is silly as hell, but the thing that pops into my mind when I have I've had this conversation. Uh, Million times, right? I've had it so many times, and I've had this—I've had this sort of thought going on in my brain. I mean, I've thought about this over and over and over so many times in the last eight years about how to how could it how could we get it better the headrest situation. Um, and every time I think about this, you guys, when y'all were in school, man, did they ever have the thing where you—you it was a challenge among your classmates to drop the egg off the roof and figure out how to so they you Mm. at my school we had a you know we had in science class we or physics whatever it was you were challenged You group of kids get together and you're challenged to basically drop an egg off a roof without it cracking and you could build any kind of apparatus to allow this egg to land safely but it couldn't. It couldn't be a parachute or anything else. It just had to be encased in something that would uh, that would stop the egg from breaking. And f- I know that, that, you know.
2: No, this is actually a great analogy.
0: Yeah, that to me is what my head goes. My brain thinks about that challenge. Right. That that t- that, that really basic schoolyard challenge. Right. And that's what we're up against. That's it's like right. Trying to figure out how to stop that egg from breaking right right now we've got it we know we can carry that egg around in the case and it won't break but when you drop it out of the case onto the ground what can what can be there to protect it from breaking at that moment and so
2: that's a great analogy because instinctually you're like, it's impossible, but then you know what? You know it's not impossible. There is engineering out there. There's some yeah. idea that actually would make it where you can drop an egg off a roof and it actually not crack. Yeah. What is that idea? And it's just a matter of finding it, I right?
0: know. Yeah, exactly. So there's, there's, there is an answer out there. All the kids fail, but one group always seems to be the there's one that group one. that That's gets right. it right. And you drop it over and over and the egg doesn't crack. And they're... You know, and usually their, their idea is, is, a, is, a, is a really unique build, right? Mm-hmm. And so where, where I feel like we, we look at the headrest today and go, well, that looks fine. That's plenty of foam, a lot of foam there. Uh, we don't have guys, you know, falling out of the car, uh, you know, with their brains all, all, all a mush every week, right? So this headrest must be pretty good. I don't, I don't love it. I don't love it, I want it to get better, and I think it can get better. I think that we can work harder to figure out how to make that headrest work better. Um, and while the car will improve, I think that we can, you know, we can improve uh, the cockpit and, and the surround as well, all at the same time. Man, we could be in a really, really good place in just a short period of time for these drivers in terms of
2: impacts. These drivers have given us a wake-up call, and I appreciate it. And by the way, the fact that you went through all these concussions, and it's well documented, it sort of put me back in that place over the weekend. Because Talladega is a, a place where you had a really horrendous crash and, and suffered a concussion. And it reminded me, I'm, I'm hearing drivers say something for the first time that I'd never, I just don't recall hearing, and that is that they're not going to race as hard. We saw some drivers that you can argue that chose not to get up there and engage in fear of the big one, right? We didn't have a big one this past weekend at Talladega. And I had to wonder, you know, is it because they're just not making the moves that they typically would make uh, because of fear of crashing? It's possible. I also don't want to go assume it. uh, I just know it's possible. But there was something that I remember happened to you, and you documented this in your book, Racing to the Finish. Still available at all places you buy books. Um, and that was that at Talladega for the first time you you throttled off. Yep. Like you you it spooked you, right? Like you thought, oh my my it, it all came into your head and, and you you laid off the throttle and got out of that pack. And I wonder if that happened this past weekend because we heard Noah Gregson say a few weeks ago he wasn't looking forward to getting in the cup car and that he told his team that he's only going to run about 80 percent that is not something you want to say or you i mean listen you it's just it's i'm and by the way i don't i don't know i'm not saying i fault him i'm just saying i'm hearing drivers seem scared they're, they're, they're scared to get in the race car and that's not a thing you want to have and so it's such a wake-up call and everything you're saying Makes total sense. And I appreciate you saying it because I think for myself and for probably most of our listeners, we don't, we're never going to have that, any of these types of vantage points that you're, you're talking about, but it makes sense to us. Um, and I hope that the drive, and I also think that NASCAR is absolutely listening to these drivers. I think that, uh, I, you know, I'm sure that they're working on the problem and, um, and, we're, just, you know, unfortunately, we've got to be patient to, you know, allow those things to kind of manifest. Find the person that's able to find how the egg doesn't crack off the roof, right? Yeah. It's got to happen.
0: That, the car, these fixes will be there for next year. The drivers would love it to be here right now today so that they can move forward with the remainder of this season without z- any real concern. They want to feel like they can go out there and, like you say, Mike, take all the risks. Um, I've been around the sport a really long time, and I think there was something to the way this Talladega race played out—the lack of the big crash, the lack of the big risky moves. I think it actually absolutely is, is correlates between hmm. the com- you know the conversation around safety, the danger, the concussions. I've seen this in the past. This is history repeating itself, where there's been. You know, there'll be this sort of either a safety conversation going on in the sport or some concern that's that's came about, arose to the surface, or either we've had a, you know, we had a, uh, uh, some serious accidents um, and we'll go to those two tracks or one of those tracks at Daytona or Talladega and have a very calm race where everybody sort of, everybody races hard, but they don't, race recklessly there was
2: no bonsai blocking this past sunday That's you true. know stuff that we usually see at these plate yeah. track There just didn't and, and that and i actually appreciated that i enjoyed not seeing that
0: yeah there was a uh there was a lot of reasons why that happened mike and i think that absolutely the safety conversation was a part of that an ingredient to what we saw uh the car itself um you know that's a whole nother conversation, man. Denny mentioned it. The car has so much drag on it. Nobody wanted to jump out of line. Uh, as soon as you jump out of line, and the drag, it's like pulling a parachute mm. and going to the back. Nobody's going to go with you, and uh, so you pull out of line. You're all by yourself.
1: But um, that's a whole nother. That's a whole nother conversation for another day. If you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know, and so much you need to know. What are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or the neighborhood best? And why can't all this information just be in one place? Dalton, this probably sounds real familiar to you.
5: It does. I just bought a house last year. and You know, you asked uh, why can't all this information be in one place? Well, now it is. On homes.com, they've got everything you need to know about the listing itself, but even better.
0: We'll wrap it up with this. Then he said um, on pit road before the race that he felt great about the concussion protocols in NASCAR. Um, the NFL, uh, the recent incidents in the NFL had brought some attention to protocol. Uh, and I feel like that NASCAR has a pretty, pretty solid system of, of you know, checks and balances uh, that when a driver has an impact, uh, if they have contact of any kind, even if they can drive the car uh, back to the garage or whatever, uh, they are required to go into the infield care center and we get checked out. And at every infield care center, at every racetrack, there's a neurosurgeon who is tasked with making sure that that driver passes an impact test or he is examined for a concussion. And so while it's not as thorough as one might get if he were to go visit. Uh, medical center um it is a little it's it's abbreviated but it is a uh it, it is a you know a safety net if you will to protect that driver and um while i think we can always be visiting that and revisiting that to try to make sure that that net is filtering as good as possible so that a driver can't slip through and get back out onto the racetrack with an injury um I feel pretty good about where it is today compared to where, you know, it was completely absent in the past. There was nothing to protect the drivers. You can't, you know, you can't put this on anybody but the safety uh, medical personnel there. I mean, you know, if a crew chief sees something, um, absolutely he needs to point it out. If he sees, if he, you know, I got out of the car at Kansas after I blew that right front um, at the tire test and my car chief saw me and he goes, you're not right. You ain't right. Yep. He knew it right away when he looked at me. He said, "You're that's staring." Right. He said, "You're staring right through me, man. You you got a weird dazed look on your face." And I was like, "Do I?" And he's like, "You ain't right." So I mean, if you're uh, a crew member, crew chief, or whatever, right? You see this, right? You visually understand that there's something wrong here. Uh, you 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 ought to speak up. But you know, it's not really on their it's not really their responsibility, or that's not. Part of our protocol. That's not part of the safety net. The safety net is the neurosurgeon in the medical center. Those guys need to make sure, you know, when a driver comes through there, that they uh, recognize an issue and uh, and 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 keep. You know, drivers are not. You cannot depend on the drivers to protect themselves.
2: Well, then perhaps those crew members need to be held accountable a little bit more than they are. Listen, I'm telling you, if, if these teams love their drivers, and I know they do, uh, help them protect themselves from I, themselves. Because, if again, listen, if we can assume that there's people out there run, racing with concussions right now, which we started this whole mm. conversation in assuming that, and I think you're right, then, then the protocols also must be continually revisited and improved, just because, like all the other things. That's just yeah. what
0: I said, but I don't think you can – we can't sit here and go, all right man, that, that that crew member let that you know let that slip through, didn't say nothing. The, the, the crew chiefs, the crew members, all these other people outside of that medical staff are not part of the protocol. And so therefore, while that's unfortunate if one of them sees something and doesn't say something, they're not part of the protocol and not, they're, that's, not that should, that's not part of the filter to say, to, you know, to, it ain't, it, it, it can't be expected to be, um, because like, they're not doctors, they're not, you know, you're not going to go see a, a carpenter to, you know, to, you know, to get your car fixed.
2: Uh, no, but maybe there's a, some sort of mechanism or protocol that allows, it allows for a, somebody, a team member, somebody to almost confidentially go and just say, hey, check out could, you just, could somebody go look, take a look at my guy or could take a look at this? I don't think they're right. And then maybe they get cleared. Maybe that's fine. Right. But just something that, that allows people to speak up and, and uh, maybe do that extra check. Because th- those, peop- those neurosurgeons don't check on a driver unless they've crashed, right? Yeah. Yeah, maybe there's some sort of mechanism that people can, uh, you know, get that started before a crash and hopefully avoid it. Yeah. I don't know. All right. Um, <laughs> we don't have the yeah. answers, I know. <laughs> well, I just think that
0: you know, I think that uh, the drivers are never going to be a hundred percent transparent. You can't, you know, they won't. And for right or better or worse, right or wrong, it's obviously wrong. But you, it's never going to change. Drivers are never going to start speaking up immediately. You know, if you got five drivers, right, they all crash, and every one of them's concussed. One of them might say something.
2: Hmm, that's. That's right. generous. I, I, I almost think all five would say no. I mean, listen, and it's not just drivers, it's all athletes. Yeah. I mean, Tua Tungvaloa was the example this past week. I mean, that guy shouldn't have been playing, but he, he was the first one to know he shouldn't have been playing, and yet he he wants to be out on the field. I mean, yeah. I think that's just a natural, instinctual thing from athletes. All
0: right, so if that's the case, and, and, and the drivers aren't going to uh, be transparent in that moment, I think that the Neurosurgeon and the re- people that are responsible have to be at a heightened awareness and a and a and alert in those moments, right? It, and I'm certain they are, but uh, it just it's critical, like that 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 they really give that driver a good evaluation in that in that and and I that still doesn't that still doesn't save. That still doesn't fix everything. That's the tough part about concussions, man. Is because you can look at a guy and he looks perfectly normal, and he could be, he could be having a war going on in his head, and you'd never know it. Mm. Um, and they can, you know, and 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 you can almost, you know, it's really that, you know, that guy, that car chief, that friend, that wife, that that brother, that person is the one <laughs> that's probably going to notice anything. That neurosurgeon. Is not spent time with you. They don't know your, you know, they don't really know your personality and the way you are. And and and, but that person that stays with you every day or is with you or around you all the time, like, you know, like if you had a concussion, Mike, I'd probably pick up on it before uh, a doctor would, you know, because of your mannerisms yep. and your the your your personality We've and spent too all much that time stuff together, changes. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. But so. You know, if it's like an if it's a moment, if it's like, hey, man, we got a five minute window to figure this out. Who's going to figure it out? Your wife. Yeah. Right. Your daughters. Right. The people that know you. To the core. You're right. Um, it's it's a tough thing, man. And but I think, you know, hey, hopefully we get these cars better. It's going to take a little bit of time. And uh, because I'd love to not be talking about this. Pretty excited to have this next guest come into the podcast studio today. Ned Yost is is an ally. He is an absolute ally. I've been in touch with this guy for a really long time. He shared with me about how much his friendship with my father meant to him over the years. They became great hunting friends and buddies and spent a lot of time together. And Ned's been wanting to come onto the show for some time to tell us about that. So uh, we're going to bring him into the studio. Want to thank Ally? They do it right, man. They do everything right. And they help us uh, with this guest segment every single week. We want to thank them again. Uh, let's get Ned Yost in the room.
2: Let's do it.
4: The one, two, again. The 2015 World
3: Champions. I'm a race fan at heart. I don't watch football. I don't watch basketball. You know, I watch a little baseball, but. My passion is NASCAR racing. And Ned Yost is ejected for the first time as Royals manager. You've been watching the Royals. Be ready. He swings first pitch. And he swings and hits it into left center. Back at the track. It is
4: dropped. Cespedes couldn't make the catch. Digging around third. through Kansas City. Broken back.
3: Thank you, thank you, thank you. First thing. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> right. well, it, How you you. Looking? Oh, man, this looks different. Yeah. It yeah. looks great. Yeah, thank you, man.
2: Take it in. You, oh, you, we get, yeah. you We're on your time now. You, you just take it in. You you know, uh, you been here for the first time, so yeah. sometimes a lot well, people just like I've to look around. Well, I've been
3: here for the first time. I've been actually at Junior Motorsports probably – 10 times.
2: Have you? Really?
3: Yeah. yeah, because my son went to UTI. Huh. And, oh, uh, wow. And became a diesel mechanic, got his diesel mechanics uh, certification, a Ford diesel mechanic. So we would come up and visit him. And every time we did, I. Stop by the, the shop and get a foundation hat or get some kind of Dale yeah. Jr. stuff. Did you
2: tell anybody that you were here? No. Well that's the problem. No.
3: I wouldn't do that. I <laughs> Why wouldn't Why not? No, I just wouldn't. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to come in and see the place. <laughs> yeah. So it was really cool. Yeah. So So where are you where are you living at? Greenville, Georgia. Really? Yep, Greenville, Georgia. All right. We so. uh, it's a little town of about six hundred and fifty people. Uh, We've got a 500-acre farm out there, and we just, I absolutely love it. We deer hunt every day, um, bow hunt, and um, fish. Got a 30-acre lake in the middle of it, and got, you know, five, six-acre dove field. So uh, just enjoying the outdoor life.
0: Yeah. So when you were working in Kansas City, did you have a
3: place there, or did Mm-mm. you? So this this Georgia's been home for how long? Well, since I was with the Braves. Okay. You know, I I uh, Bobby Cox hired me in the winter of 1990. My first year was 91. So I was there 12 years. So my kids grew up there. Yeah. So, you know, all their friends, my oldest son was in first grade. So
0: when you're moving from organization to organization, what do you do for for a place to stay? You just get you a townhouse or something? Yeah, just rent. It's something. Yeah, you know?
3: I didn't buy anything anywhere. When I was in Milwaukee, I didn't buy – well, I, I take that back. When we went to Milwaukee – I thought it was really good that we'd stay together as a family, right? So I moved my whole family there for two years. My kids hated it, right? (laughs) You grow up in the South, it's a different mentality than than Wisconsin. So we ended up moving back and we stayed there, uh, you know, until they all graduated from high school.
0: So let me ask you this question. So while I was looking at your uh, career as a player, how does somebody know, I don't care if it's baseball, football, whatever, how does a how does a how does a person know that they would be a good coach right yeah and how does that develop and, and I really want to know only from a from the ones that were players right right so players are typically I'm ignorant about all this but anyways yeah. when I when I watch you know when I watch you know players they have to understand the details of 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 the game but what makes them a great what makes that player become a Good coach, you know, like Byron Leffert <coughs> is a was a great quarterback, yeah, right? Now I he's remember. a coach. Now he's a coach of Tampa Bay, right? And so I'm always fascinated when I see those guys get into coaching, and I wonder, all right, what 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 makes them so good? Is it the leadership skills, mm-hmm. getting guys to really buy into their thought process? And I mean, let's be clear, like I guess if you were, you know, if if it, if you had won a lot of championships or something like that, it would be easy to get guys to buy in, right? Mm-hmm. But your playing career was re- quite brief,
3: yeah. You know, and it was a second string playing career, right? So know? how mm. are the,
0: the guys look at you at first and go, well, what? How, what now, do you know? Right? No,
3: I think for me, Dale, I was really, really lucky lucky in a lot of ways. All right? as a player, I came up as a minor league player, made the big leagues in 1980, but I was always a backup. Right. And I always wanted to play. I wanted to play, but I was a backup. I was a backup. I was a backup. And I played with um, a guy by the name of Ted Simmons, who was just inducted to the Hall of Fame this this summer, right? Mm -hmm. And Teddy came up to me one day, and he goes, uh, hey, I want to see you tomorrow. This is spring training, right? I want to see you tomorrow. Be here at 7 o'clock. So I'm like, okay, so... Teddy had been with us all year, the year before, and I'm like, he hadn't said 10 words to me last year. Why does he want to see me now? Go to my locker, right? And I'm looking through it, seeing if anything of his is in my locker. Maybe he thought I stole something, right? (laughs) Really? yeah. Yeah. So nothing, right? So the next day, I show up, and he says, listen, he said, I've been in this game a long time. And he said, I've learned a lot. People have taken time to teach me this game. And if you want I will teach you this game. Mm. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that'll be cool. But I'm thinking in the back of my mind, what's he going to teach me? I've been playing baseball my whole life. right? Right. Well, I didn't understand. I knew nothing about the game. I mean, absolutely nothing. Teddy told me I'll have something for you every day. So I'm like, okay. Every day for the next two and a half years, Teddy had one, two, three hours worth of conversation on things that happened in the game and talking about – you know, defensive lineup, outfield play, infield play, inter-diamond defense, pitching moves, running counts, all this stuff, right? So he, he handed me a blank piece of paper when we started, and he said it had a baseball diamond on it. And he said, I want you to start with nobody on, base hit to left field, and you write down where every player on this field is supposed to go. Mm. And I want it to go from base hit to left field, nobody on, to bases loaded, triple down the line. I want to know where everybody's supposed to go. So when I was done, I had a stack like that big, right? Teddy got me thinking about the fundamentals of baseball and understand the ins and outs of the game. And when I left Teddy, I was a far more knowledgeable player than I ever was in my life, right? And still hadn't thought about coaching, still to this point. Oh, is that right? No, never even thought about it, right? Okay. So in 1985, I got sent down to the minors. I played three or four months in the minors, got called up to the big leagues. At the end of the year, I went back to spring training, got released. I said, that's it, right? I do not I do not want to be bouncing around. I had a family at this point. I'm 30 years old. My problem was... I didn't have a college education. I went to junior college to play baseball. So I wasn't really focusing on the the, the academic standpoint of my education. So I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm home for two weeks, and I don't have any idea what I'm going to do. And I'm out, and I come back, and my wife, when I got home, said, hey, you got a phone call today. And I said, really? She goes, yeah, from uh, Hank Aaron. So I'm like <laughs> – Okay. <laughs> which one of my buddies is, you know, saying they're Hank Aaron, right? Well, the next day, the phone rings again. It was Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron was the farm director for the Atlanta Braves. And he said, listen, Ned, we've got some young prospects in A, which is Greenville, South Carolina. And he said, we're looking for a veteran catcher to come be a player coach. Would you be interested in that? And some of our best pitching prospects are there. And this was 86, and I said, well, yeah. Yeah, I'll give it a try. You know, I, don't, I never really thought about coaching, but you know, maybe I'll, uh, you know, maybe I'll like it and I'll give it a try. And the thing about it is, it's only like five hours from home. If I don't like it, I'll pack up and head out, right? So when I got there, I found out that the young pitching prospects were Tom Glavin, Kent Merker, <laughs> you, you know, uh, Tommy Green, uh, Pete Smith. Jeff Blauser, David Justice, Ronnie Gant, Mark Lemke, oh, good heavens. all these yes. kids that, that formed the nucleus of a 12-year run when I was at, was at this club. Well, of course, I loved it, right? And being a veteran guy, being playing in the big leagues, and being able to help mentor them through that, I just loved it. And I did that for two years. But the problem was I still had to play, right? <laughs> so I'm like, okay at the end of two years, I'm like, I, I don't want to play anymore. I, I want to move on. I want to be a minor league manager. Mm. So they said, okay. So they gave me a minor league manager's job in Sumter, South Carolina. I was there three years. And now I'm thinking to myself, you know, moving fast. And I told my wife, I said, look, when we get into this, just get ready. Cause I'm probably going to have to be a minor league coach for like Ten years before I get a shot
2: That's in Sumter, South Carolina, is that a single A team yeah, for the Braves? It's a low A ball. Team. Low A ball, yeah, not have. even high A, but no, low A. No, okay. Yeah. So you're dealing with them straight out of either college or high school or whatever that is.
3: Yeah, most of them, uh, most of them are, are second and third year players, depending on who they got were. it. So young, young kids, right? So went to instruction league after the third year, and I get a phone call from Bobby Dews, who's the the the, the player development. Uh, head, right? And he goes, hey, St. Louis called, and they want to talk to you about their double-A job. So I'm like, ooh, okay, I'll give it a shot, right? So he said, but Bobby Cox wants to talk to you first before you decide. And Bobby was the GM. So I That's said, okay, okay, so I called Bobby, and I said, hey, he, how you doing, Bobby? He goes, good, Ned, listen, I know St. Louis called. He said, we, this was like 1989, uh, going into 90, he goes, look, we've, we've going to have some movement next year. And he said, if you stick around, he said, it's a great opportunity. Go manage double A. It's a big jump. But if you stick around, you could be right in the middle of some of this stuff. So I'm like, hey, I'm not going anywhere. And then sure enough, in 19, 1990, Bobby hired me to be the bullpen coach. So it was, uh, it was a fantastic experience, uh, you know, being in the minor leagues. And I remember for the first time, my old agent came in spring training one time, and he told me, and this was the first time I ever thought about being a major league manager, He said, you know, if you keep your nose clean, you got a chance to be a major league manager. And that's the first time I I thought about that. And I thought, you know what, he's right. He's right. But that experience with the Braves set me up because when I went with Bobby, I was there 12 years. Went to the World Series five times. Mm -hmm. And won a world championship. But I was there for the first eight years as a bullpen coach. So I had the opportunity to catch every side session that Greg Maddox, Tommy Glavin, John Smoltz, all these kids threw, right? Eight years of that taught me the fundamentals of pitching, right? Taught me, understood mechanics of pitching, underst- understood pitching philosophy and the art of pitching. And then four years as a third base coach that taught me how to run a game, being with Bobby, because Bobby and I, you know, uh, we got to the point where we were dead on the exact same – thought pattern. I knew what he was going to do before he was going to do it. And those 4 years taught me how to run a game and how to handle a game and uh, you know at that point I was ready to move on and become a major league manager myself. Yeah.
0: And so was there anything about that intimidating? You know as a pl- I want to actually as a player you're responsible for you, you're responsible for your responsibility, your job, your mom- you know, you're responsible for what you can control but when you're placed to you know, sort of over the umbrella of the entire team. I mean, that right. is there any of that that was overwhelming at all?
3: Not really, um, and I'll, t- I'll tell you why. Because when, at the end of 2002, the Milwaukee Brewers called, right? And they wanted to know if I'd be interested in uh, interviewing for the major league manager's job. So I'm like, yeah, you know, uh, sure, that would be great, right? So I called Bobby real quick, and I said, Bobby – Brewers called, they want to interview me for the manager's job. I said, What what do they do in an interview? Bobby said, <laughs> Bobby goes, Ned, I hate to tell you, they've always just given me my jobs. I got no <laughs> idea, right? So I was real nervous about it. Am I ready? Am I ready to move in? Am I ready to do this? Am I ready to run a franchise, especially a franchise that had lost 106 games the the year before? And I went in to do the interview. And I'm still nervous about it, right? I don't know what this interview is going to be about. And the general manager asked me the first question. He said, who are your mentors? And as soon as he asked me that question, all anxiety left me. Because I knew at that point some of the stuff we just talked about. Ted Simmons, Bobby Cox, Dale Earnhardt. Mm. And he looked at me and he said, really? And I said, yeah. Teddy Simmons taught me the game. Bobby Cox taught me how to treat people and how to run a game. Dale Earnhardt taught me how to compete. And from that point on, I knew that I was prepared, that subconsciously I had had lessons from some of the greatest teachers on the face of the earth on how to be uh, ahead of an organization from these people, and I was absolutely prepared, and I was never intimidated. I was never anxious or upset except for... You know, when I first put that Brewer's uniform on for the first time, then I was a little hesitant because, (laughs) and I'll tell you why, Dale, you get a kick out of this. Your dad and I were deer hunting in Texas. So we were driving. We would go to this place called Encino Ranch. I remember. Yeah. yeah. remember the name of that. Yeah. Yeah. He went there a lot. A lot, right? So (laughs) we would get on this high rack, and we would drive around looking for deer. So, the majority of the time was spent having a beer and looking for deer, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) T shirt idea. Yeah. yeah.
3: So, we were sitting there one day and he was going through his negotiations on his contract and it was having a, you know, it was a rough negotiation. About
2: what year is this?
3: Man, Mike, I don't know. I can't really remember. All right, didn't matter. But it was before, uh, well, I don't know. Okay. But he was, he was going through a negotiation, right? And to the point where there was a, a rumor or two that he might move to Ford. What? Right? Yeah. So anyway, he was like, I ain't moving to Ford. But somehow or another, when he went to the racetrack, you know, he'd get rental cars. The only car left was a Ford, and he showed up in a Ford, and that started it all, right? I got you. So,
4: <laughs> <laughs> so he wasn't going to do that.
3: But anyway, we're sitting there talking, and he's telling me, you know, it's a— you know, he's going to get it done, but it's tough right now. And I said to him, I said, hey, I said, why don't you just go drive for yourself? He goes, no, we're not ready to win. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, we're not ready to win. He goes, I'm not leaving. He- Let me tell you something. He goes, you never leave a winner to go to a loser. RCR is a winner. We're proving it. DEI is going to be a winner, but they're not a winner yet. So you never, ever leave a winner to go to a loser never well I'm sitting there and I told him I said hey let me tell you something (laughs) I'm gonna have to leave a winner to go to a loser and he goes no you're not and I said the only way I'm ever going to get a chance to manage in the big leagues is I'm going to have to go to a loser and that's the only way I'm going to get my shot And he goes no you're not You're going to stay right there in Atlanta, and you're going to take over when Bobby retires. I said, Dale, Bobby's not retiring for 10 to 12 years. He said, I don't care. I said, listen, I'm going to have to go to a loser. He grabbed me and pulled me over to his face. And he said, Ned, you never, ever leave a winner to go to a loser. Do you understand? You never do it. Well, I I was done with this conversation. Okay, yeah, I get it, right? (laughs) I get it. So in 2002 is when this happened, right? Yeah. So the first time I get this job, I put on this uniform, and all I can do is hear your dad in the back of my head Mm. like, what in the hell are you doing, right? What in the hell are you doing? And it went on like that. I had a picture of your dad in my office, and it was one of those pictures that wherever you are in the room, he's looking at you, right? It was one of those. We would – Come in after losing a tough game, I'd throw my lineup cards on the table and I'd look up and he'd be staring at me. And I'd, I mean, <laughs> if this happened once, it happened a hundred times. I'm like, what the hell are you looking at? Because <laughs> you know, I could hear him. I could hear him, right? So it was, it was a little bit, uh, you know, tough for me to do that. Yeah. But my goal was to go from a winner, go to a loser, and make it a winner yeah and we finally we were on the verge of doing that in Milwaukee, and um you know it didn't work out, but we we got there in Kansas City so when we made that last out uh in the World Series in two thousand and fifteen, all I can think about was your dad really, really that's it it's at I left a winner, I went to a loser, and we made it a winner and I just knew how proud uh I knew how proud he was going to be you
0: know, so that, at that time. so that speaks to the profound effect that he had on you, um, and let's go. Let's let's learn how y'all met. So when do you what, do you remember the first time you and Dad crossed paths?
3: Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, we I had lived in Mississippi, and Jody Davis and I came up together in a Mets organization. Right, mm-hmm. Jody was a year behind me, so Jody was from Georgia. I'm from Mississippi, or my wife's from Mississippi, right? and we loved to deer hunt. So we would talk about deer hunting all the time, and in 1975, I get traded to uh, the the Milwaukee Brewers, Jody gets traded to the Cubs, so we kind of split that way, right? Well, Jody's career was much better than mine. Jody was the first-string catcher, I was the second-string catcher. But back in the mid-'80s, or the 86 or 87, right in there somewhere, Jody signed as a free agent with the Atlanta Braves, and now I'm with the Braves, right? So we're kind of back together again. And we're talking about hunting, and Jody's coming to Mississippi to hunt. And um, I had this place. uh, One of my best friends um, was a timber buyer. And the guy that owned his lumber mill was a guy by the name of Warren Hood, and he had a fantastic place to go hunting, right? I mean, just a phenomenal deer hunting place. I always wanted to go give it a shot. Found out the guy was a huge Dale Earnhardt fan, right? So I didn't really know your dad from Adam at that point. Mm -hmm. So... Went to spring training, and I'm talking to Jody, and I'm trying to get in. I want to hunt this place, right? <laughs> so I said, uh, hey, uh, you know, you guys got to come. If you bring Dale, we'll be able to hunt this place. It's <laughs> a really cool place, right? yeah. So he's like, okay, all right. So he talks to Dale. Well, they set it up, right? Yeah. So the winter comes along, and Jody, we're getting close, and we're getting closer, and Jody calls me and he goes, "Hey, okay, we're we're coming Tuesday." And I said, "Okay, cool. We got everything set up. We got Stan. This is gonna be a blast, man. We're gonna have fun." He goes, "Hey, uh, let me tell you, you know, this guy, he's a little different now." You know. What does he mean? He says, "If he don't if he don't like where he's at, he'll get up in the middle of the night and go home. He'll leave, right?" <laughs> so I'm like, "Jody, the hell with it. No, forget it. No, I'm not playing this game. Uh, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. uh uh-uh. Uh." I'm not. And he goes, no, no, it'll be cool. It'll be good. It'll be good, right? <laughs> so I've got this mindset. of okay, yeah. who the hell's coming in? Yeah. here, right. So sure <laughs> enough, they fly the king. <laughs> they fly the king air and we absolutely had a blast. I mean, we hunted for like four or five days. Dale went home, came back the next weekend, and we hunted again. And from that point on, we just hit it off, you know. And we just became good friends. And uh, it was it it was all. the love of the outdoors i think together and you know the cool thing about it was when you sit back and and think about it and i think this was why jody was you know was such a good friend too the more you were around your dad it just seemed like everybody wanted to compete with him you know because he was the intimidator you know They, they wanted to catch the biggest fish or shoot the biggest deer and you know i i made a point that i'm not competing with this guy you know, we're going to be friends, but if he wants, if he kills the biggest deer, that's fine. He catches the biggest fish, that's fine. If we're standing in the urinal, he pees longer than me, that's fine. <laughs> I don't care, right? Yeah. We're not going to compete. And I'm not going, you know, to deluge him with racing questions. And he didn't deluge me with baseball questions. He was a Braves fan. Yeah. And it was just, uh, you know, it was just a great relationship, you know, between the, the, the two of us and I think the education watching him Somebody told me one time, if you want to be successful in a field, find the person that's the most successful in that field and do everything exactly the way that he does. And that made sense to me at that time. Now, I knew that I wasn't a race car driver, right? But I knew that he was a champion, a champion's champion, and had to try to figure out what made him tick, right? So some of the questions I would ask him was like, who's your friends in racing? And this was early, late 80s. And he goes, I ain't got no friends in racing. (laughs) What do you mean you ain't got no friends in racing? He goes, I ain't got no friends in racing. You got to have friends in racing. He goes, let me tell you something. I don't ever want anybody to look in their rearview mirror, see the black three behind them, and think for an absolute second that I'm their friend. And that was his mindset, you know, back in those days. It was that he was going to give no quarter. He wasn't going to let up to anybody. He wasn't gonna give anybody a break. And I started to understand his mentality on, you know, what it took to be a champion. Now, his idea of what it took to be a champion was a lot different than mine, right, at this point. Uh, and I thought it was cool because in baseball it's tough. And and in racing, you, you can probably understand too, because I've I've thought about this, the definition of what is a win. You know, and and in baseball, you play 162 games, right? You play every day. It's a a failure-driven sport. If you're going to be a star, you're going to get three hits for 10 at-bats. It's the seven outs that drive people crazy. It's the ability to handle failure that drives people crazy and makes a difference between success and not success. So if you look at a contract and thinking through this in any sport, soccer, basketball, baseball, football, whatever it is, probably racing. The contract states your name, your address, right? Then it's got some stuff you can't do in there, ride motorcycles or whatever your sports. And then at the bottom, it says, we're going to pay you X amount of dollars, right? So I ask my players all the time, do you understand what the contract says? Well, yeah, I'm going to make this much money. I said, yes. But have you ever looked at it Because the contract simply states that we're going to pay you X amount of dollars. Doesn't say anything in there about hitting 300. Doesn't say anything in there about hitting 40 home runs. It doesn't say anything in there about 120 RBIs. It doesn't say anything in there about 200 strikeouts. What the contract simply states is that we're going to pay you X amount of dollars for your very best effort every single day. So if you give your very best effort every day, that's all you can do. So you get these kids that that don't understand that the seven outs are part of the game and they think that, you know, I'm such a failure. No, the way that you learn how to handle failure is to gauge yourself every single day. Are you giving your best effort? At the end of the day, and that was my one rule to my players, at the end of the day, when you walk into the bathroom, you look yourself in the mirror eye to eye, and you know if you've given your best effort every single day, that you were prepared, you were focused, You played hard for yourself, for your family, and your teammates. And if you can answer yes to all those, you've done your job. Absolutely done your job. Right? So go home, get a good night's sleep, come back, and let's do it again tomorrow. But your dad was different. It was a different set of standards for your dad. Yeah. Because when uh, 94, we went on strike, and we'll talk about that a little later, my first race was Darlington, right? So he ended up finishing second behind Bill Elliott. For me, second is really, really good, right? Really good. We got in the truck because we were going back to his house. Man, second place was really good. He was pissed. I don't right? like, what, are you joking? And he goes, no, second, what are you talking about? Second place is good. Second place is really, really good. And he goes, second place is the first one to lose. He said, there's nothing, there's nothing great about second place. And I thought it was a joke, but the more I was around him, it wasn't. He lived it. I mean that was his mentality and how he could handle that um the failure of of not winning all the time but he was he was a different person you know i've met a lot of i've had the opportunity to meet five presidents and a bunch of different people i've never met anybody like your dad yeah
2: you would come up you would come up with the idea that you're not going to compete against him when when you guys are hunting but it sounds to me like he wanted the competition, even in hunting or fishing and in, 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 in any of that stuff. Is that accurate? I don't think so. So, I, so it was an escape then from that competitive, the, 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 uh, the yes. high octane, just kind of, you know, he's always at a 10. It was a reprieve. Yes. Okay.
3: It was absolute reprieve because this is two different guys. I mean, at the racetrack, I mean, this guy was totally focused and committed to what he was doing. I would walk in. I'm going to holler, and he's like, hey, how you doing? Give me a hug. Hey, hey, everything good? Yeah, you good? Yeah. Sit down, right? Crickets for 15 minutes. Yeah. right. right? <laughs> well, I'm sitting there, like, well, I'm going uh, to get up and go, no, 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 sit down, sit down. right? So <laughs> after a while, you start to understand that he really wants you there, but he's so focused he can't engage. And, and I mean, it was just he was so focused. Now, race is over. We get on the plane. By the time we land where we're going, he's starting to be human again, you know. And then the next morning, he wakes up and he's a total different person. I mean, a total, total different person. He's fun to be around. He's joking. He's relaxed. Uh, you know, it was it was real it was neat to see. Yeah,
0: that's a great that's a great example or explanation for it because it's so true. And when you would go to these. Uh, when you go hunting with him, he didn't, he didn't bring that competition with him. Mm -mm, Never did. There was no, yeah, there might be a little fun game or something at some point in the weekend, a little challenge, but yeah, you know, it was never, you know, I'm going to have the, I'm going to have the better hunt
3: or, Mm -mm. you know, I lost a hundred bucks to him one time in a little, (laughs) right. Because we, we got to the point where, you know, shooting deer with a rifle just was easy, right? Well, I Bet him 100 bucks that there was a doe standing out there at 850 yards, he couldn't shoot it right. First shot, your dad was phenomenal. I've had to whip out 100 bucks. 850 yards, 850 yards. Good heavens, he smoked it, <laughs> Jeez. he smoked it. But um, that's half a mile, yeah. He was, and then you know, he would lay down, got all squatted like the snipers do, right? And we're all watching, and boom, and that deer falls over, and then all of a sudden, you see that. Mustache grin, turned right around, looking at us. But uh, yeah, there was. It was really, it was really fun to be around them when there wasn't that pressure of being at the racetrack. It wasn't that pressure of, you know, being Dale Earnhardt in yeah. front of everybody. You know, uh, we were out in the lobby, and Jeff Foxworthy's uh, a real good friend of mine, and one of the people out there said, "Is Jeff is funny in person?" And I said, "No, because he doesn't. He's not." on in person he's just jeff yeah and we have we have a really really good time but he's not the comedian jeff he's just jeff and that was your that was your dad your dad was dale earnhardt at the racetrack and he was just dale away from the racetrack and was really a really a fun guy to be around
0: did he ever talk to you about his uh his fandom for the braves Oh yeah, absolutely what all that, the time. Like so, what was his? What what, what was it with with the Braves? Well, okay. him
3: and the Braves. Okay. Well, we started out. Well, when we first met, right, we were starting to get into some prominence. And when we went to the World Series in '91, it seemed like just about every other playoff game that we would play, I'd call him at night, and he'd be watching them. Right? Hey, you watch that game? And go, yeah, it was that. Right. So, what I did was I had. JR send us a bunch of Goodwrench hats.
2: Yeah, JR Rhodes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yep.
3: JR would send us a bunch of good wrench hats, and I would pass them out. Now during the playoffs, which is when you get all the national attention, yeah. when our guys after the game, after a win, they do all their press conferences in. Goodwrench hats. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was really cool. And Dale, you're Oh, I'm
0: sure he yeah, loved it. They thought it was the greatest thing ever.
3: Everything, right? So <laughs> yeah. they, all these guys would been doing interviews in, in Goodwrench hats, and he absolutely <laughs> loved it to the point where, you know, he would start wearing Braves hats when he we did. were do, doing that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of how that got started. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we've awesome. <laughs> – to awesome. I would talk to him all the time. I introduced him to Bobby Cox, and Bobby loved him. He really loved Bobby. You know, they they did really, really well. So one day, he wants to come to a game. So I said, come on, man. He brings RC and, you know, seven or eight, ten guys, and he gets in the locker room. He's talking to Deion Sanders and Terry Pendleton. And we're having a blast, right? So (laughs) we go to the game, and we lose. So he's like, oh, the heck with that. He comes back the next day, right? We lose again. So I talked to him after the game, and he goes, man, I ain't ever going to a game again. I said, why? He goes, I'm a jinx. I said, you're a jinx? I said, let me tell you something, pal. I said, if I come to a race and you finish 38th, it ain't my damn fault. All right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, you ain't no jinx. We just lost two in a row. But he, he got to be a huge fan and loved yeah. – Loved it when Bobby came in. I think what was so cool was when he won the Daytona 500, Bobby had uh, a bat made for him. And it was a black walnut bat with a mother-of-pearl car in it, right, with the three inched in. And it said, you know, Daytona 500 champion and had the whole team sign it. He loved it, right? So when we won the World Series in 95, your dad loved knives. So he had this huge knife made, right, for Bobby. And it was a really, really cool in a a case. And, you know, 1995 World Championships had the World Series logo on it. It was just a really, really – he was so proud to give Bobby that that knife. But the cool thing about it was he liked it so much he had one made for himself. (laughs) (laughs) So that was how we kind of got together, you know, between the two. And I would – I would sit on Sundays with a little radio, transistor radio with the little earplug and listen to his race, you know, while, during the game. You know, I was, <laughs> you know, listen to how he, how he was doing. But yeah. it, it just got to be where it just became a really match where he got to know Terry Pendleton and, and a lot of these guys. And uh, it was just, it was, it was it, cool to be able to root for, for, for him and for him to root for us. Well, those, they, those
2: teams were magical too, right? I mean, it, t- when you're talking about Terry Pendleton, I mean, like th- th- those early 90s, teams, even before they won the World Series, I mean, those were some fantastic baseball
3: teams. Fantastic, with the pitching that we had. Oh, my and, goodness. And, you know, we had, in 91, we lost Game 7 uh, in 14 innings. Against you know, Minnesota, right? Yeah, against Minnesota, yeah. yeah. And then we lost to Toronto in 92. We went to the playoffs, but we didn't win, didn't go to the World Series. 94 was the strike year. 95, we won the World That's Series. That's right. So... Uh, we ended up going to the World Series in 96 and won the first two games and then lost the next four to the Yankees in 99, got swept. But um, he, he just absolutely loved – he loved uh, the Braves. And we'd do stuff like, you know, after, um, after Bristol when he hit Terry Labonte and everybody was pissed at him, right? So it was like ten minutes. We're playing a Sunday night game. i thought Bobby, come on, let's go in. We went into Bobby's office and we called Dale. He goes, hey. He goes, what are you guys doing? He said, I'm sitting in front of the TV. You're going to play in ten minutes. I said, yeah. We just wanted to call you. And he goes, uh, 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 all right. He said, hey, we wanted to call and tell you we're proud of you. You're proud of me. And I said, yeah. That was a great win. We're proud of you. Bobby's here. Bobby's proud of you. He goes, Well, I'm glad you guys are proud of me because everybody else is pissed as hell at me. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So it was. Uh, it was a cool. It was a cool relationship there.
0: So he had a. You know, you had that friendship with Jody Davis, and I remember Jody coming to some of the races and being around, and um, and uh, and your friendship as well. And you mentioned Blouser; I think him and Blouser right. hit it off a little bit. Were yeah. there any other players uh, that that he made a
3: connection with? Oh, Terry Pendleton. He, you know, Terry would come to the races all the time, and Bobby, oh. and um, uh, those were the main ones yeah. that we would we would do we would go to a lot of the races and we would spend some time with them. Yeah. Uh, and and Blouser went actually hunting with us one time out Texas. I thought Texas. so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, remember him and, mit- I remember him mentioning him. And Chipper was always afraid of him. So For real? Yeah, he was scared of him. Because your dad, you know how your dad yeah. was, right? Well, he would, like, jab him, right? And Chipper, he <laughs>
0: Plus, Chipper's like... Twenty years
3: younger. Yeah, uh, he was way yeah, twenty years kid. younger. Yeah, and, and your dad liked liked to try to make people uncomfortable. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we'd be driving down the street, and I'd be driving, and all of a sudden, your dad would reach over with his foot. I don't know if he ever did this to you, and slam down the gas pedal, right? Yeah. It, and if you'd be driving, all of a sudden that foot coming like like this, and he wanted to see you panic and pull your foot off, and right. Every time he did that, and he only did it like twice. He'd slam his foot down, I'd just take my hands back. <laughs> oh my goodness. He'd take his foot off real, real yeah. quick, right? He loved to see you panic, but <laughs> he was that that guy.
0: When you go to Kansas City, uh, to 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 manage that team, I guess at that point you're pretty feeling pretty confident about your abilities and all those things. Right. I'm trying to compare winning the World Series possibly to Winning, like, the Daytona 500. I, I can't – I can't I wouldn't know what winning the championship feels like, but I know how winning – I know how much Dad wanted to win the Daytona I'll 500. Admit, so do I. And me winning it and how that felt. You don't know whether that's ever going to be your reality. When you start to see, like, this, this is – I remember Dad saying in 1980, middle of the year, in an interview, he goes, it dawned on me, damn, I could win this championship. He's sitting there leading the points for a lot of the first <laughs> half of the year, but it never clicked in his mind. He just – was doing right, and finally he had a moment of clarity where he's like, "Holy shit, this is, I could do this." Yeah, and so I imagine there was a point in 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 that experience with Kansas City where you were like, "Damn,"
3: it was it was experience like you said. When I came to Atlanta in 1991, in 1990 they didn't even draw a million fans, right? They had 800,000 fans in dead last place, but. In 90 and, and 89, these young players started filtering to the big leagues, right? And you watch their progression. It took them about two and a half years till they got to the point they understood big league life, they understood the pressures, they understood what it took to win, and they got to the point where instead of thinking they could win, they knew in their heart they could win, right? Two and a half years. And then they took off. We went on a 12-year run Divisions. They actually went 14. They went two more after I left. So when I went to Milwaukee, it was the same type scenario when I got there, right, which gave me hope. Yeah. We had a core group of really, really good young players in A-ball. They won the championship in A-ball. They won the championship in A. They won the championship in AAA. So when they got to the big leagues, you knew if you give them enough time, That they're going to get two and a half years is about it. They're going to get to where they can compete, right? Well, they got to the two and a half year point, and now here we are. We hadn't had a winning season in 25 years, and now we're on the verge of making the playoffs. The last step was getting to the point where instead of thinking you're good, you know in your heart that you're good. And there's a difference between trying to convince yourself you're good to wake it up in the morning with the dead knowledge that you're good and you can win, right? And we were just at that point, and we had gone into September, into uh, August. We were like 21-7, and seven, right? We had a great. But going into September, they're still thinking that they're good. They're starting to feel the pressure a little bit, and they lost 10 out of 13. And I'm like, okay, come on, we'll write the shift. The owner calls me and says, we're making a change. I'm like, what? He goes, we're making a change right here. He didn't understand that we were just right at the verge of getting over the hump. And we went this year to a 40-year reunion to the last time they went to the World Series. All right, 40 years since they've been to the World Series. And I believe, just leave us alone, because that was our last little hump. Let them gain that experience that it takes through that adversity. The next year, there's no telling what they can happen. I ended up getting fired, and then they ended up going 40 games under 500 the next two years. So I knew the process worked. Yeah. So when I went to Kansas City, same scenario. We had a group of really, really good young players in A-ball, and I knew you just had to buy time, right? AA, AA, AAA, one championships. Two and a half year point. I'm thinking, okay. Well, the two and a half year point for us came at the All Star break. And we were flying into Yankee Stadium. We were th- three games under 500. In 2015? 13. 13. Okay. Yep. Okay. So we're three games under 500. So I'm like on the plane. I'm thinking, we're going to go in there. We're going to kick the crap out of the Yankees. We're going to go into the All Star break at 500 and we're going to take off. We're at the two and a half year mark, right? So we go into the Yankee Stadium and get swept. So now we're six games under 500 going into the All-Star break. And I'm thinking to myself, damn, well, maybe it's going to take this group a little longer, right? We came back from the All-Star break, and from 13, the All-Star break, to the end of 15 when we won the World Championship, no team in baseball won more games than we did. Mm. And it was that two-and-a-half-year mark. Now, the difference was – They were going through their adversity in 14, and we were scrapping, man, trying to make the playoffs and just make the wild card. And they got to a point in the wild card game. We were playing against a pitcher named John Lester, and we could not beat John Lester. He's pitching for Oakland, right? We were down like three runs going into the eighth inning. And Lester's out there pitching. We came up for the bottom of the seventh is what it was. And Lester's out there just sticking it to us, right? Hadn't beaten him all year. So I hear a little rumble down on the end of the dugout, a little rumble, a little rumble, a little rumble. It's getting louder. It's getting louder. And then all of a sudden I look down there, and our guys are down there, and they're getting worked up, right? And they're sitting there screaming, we're not losing to this guy. Not tonight. <laughs> <laughs> He's not beating us. Not tonight. Yeah. Not tonight. That's not happening. Let's go. Get on. Get him over. Get him in. We're not losing tonight, right? I'm like, well, cool. They're fighting, right? They went out there, scored two runs in the bottom of the seventh, one in the eighth to tie the ball game. And then they scored in the ninth. We scored in the ninth. Right? We ended up winning the game in the twelfth inning. And for me, that was the point that they went from thinking that they could win to the point knowing they could win. And then we went on a. I mean, it's a record eight no run. No team has ever gone eight no in the playoffs. We ended up sweeping sweeping Anaheim, then sweeping Baltimore, and had a great World Series in '14. Um, you know, we ended up losing game seven, but then came back in fifteen and won the world championship. So uh, it was all it was all part of uh, you know, part of the plan and, and, and again going back to you know, some of the stuff that your your dad would always stay focused and he taught me, look, there's little picture, there's big picture. Little picture is today. Do whatever you can to to take care of little picture, but don't let it affect big picture. And your dad's big picture was always winning that championship. And he would focus on whatever it took to handle little picture today, to win that race. But he wouldn't take chances if it, made it, if it was going to screw up big picture. I mean, it was always championship on the back of his mind. So for me, when I'm managing these young players, my whole focus was if I can't win a championship, it doesn't matter. So a lot of fans want you to do everything you can to try to win baseball games, everything, right? For me, I was doing everything I could to put these players in situations that would press them, that Mm. would test them, that would push them. They always got on me, why don't you pinch hit for this guy? This guy can't hit. I said, because you know why? Because there's going to come a time down the road where we're going to be in the playoffs, where we're going to be in the World Series, and this guy's going to need that experience, all right? And sure enough, that guy was at El Cades Escobar. And they just, why don't you pinch hit for him? Why don't you pinch hit for him? And in 2015, he ended up being the most valuable player of the National League Championship Series, right? Because they gained that experience, and I would do everything that I could to give them experience. If it meant losing a game, Mm. I didn't care. Big picture was what I was focused on, was winning that world championship. I wanted them to have as much experience. So when they got to that point... They were ready to compete, and it absolutely paid off.
2: Can I ask you this? When you know you've reached the point of where you, your team knows they can win or knows they will win, that like they're willing wins, what are the biggest challenges as a manager in, that, that would cause
3: disruptions to that whole process? Um, inconsistency. Inconsistency. And, and what would the, cause that? In the lineup. Panic from the manager. Never panic. Never. Guys, would we'd go through tough streaks, right? And you always want – you'd always get, like, players players together, right? And fans want you to go in. They want you to go. And all the food said, they want you to throw the food and yell and scream <laughs> and go crazy, right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. you do at umpires. right? <laughs> because it, it, the sense was, like, if you're not winning, it's because you're not trying, yeah. right? So what I would always do, we'd have a tough streak, right? I mean, we'd lose like five out of six, or six out of seven, or something, eight out of ten, or something like that. I'd get my guys together, and I learned that because it was a different generation. When I came up, if you made a mistake, the manager would scream at you, right? I mean, he'd let you have it. He'd blow your hair back, but you just took it. it was like water off a duck's back, and you didn't, it didn't bother you. You didn't get butt hurt about it. You just took it, right? Well, players nowadays, you couldn't can't yell at them. They they crawl into a shell. So you had to kind of look for different ways to communicate to them. But my goal again when I had my players, my only rule was you show up and give me your best effort every day. That's it. You be on time, don't be late. But all I want is your best effort. Now, I don't care if your best effort's an O for 4 with 4 strikeouts or a 4 for 4 with 16 RBIs. I want your best effort. And I know that your best effort ain't going to be real productive on given days, but just give it to me, mm. right? And these kids did. And when we would lose like eight out of ten. I'd get them all together. And they're expecting to get an ass-chewing, right? And I'd get them all in the locker room. I'd shut the door. Nobody in here but us, right? And I'd get up, I'd get up and come over here. I don't want to scream. I'd get them all around in a circle, and I'd say, look, I want to tell you guys something. I can't tell you how proud I am of you guys. You guys have lost eight out of 10, but you guys are playing your hearts out. You guys are playing your tails off, and this will turn for us. You just continue doing what you're doing, and we're gonna work our way out of this, and everything's gonna be great. I want you guys to go home, get a good night's sleep, and we'll be ready to go get them again tomorrow. So instead of getting a butt-chewing, they were like, man. You know, I'm going to run through a wall through this for this guy. Yeah, and that's that Mm. was that was it. Take the pressure off of them. And what we did for years, Mike, is that we taught them how to play the game. We gave them the freedom to play the game. We gave them the freedom to, to steal bases. I didn't have to stand there and put steals on all the time. I didn't have to put pitch outs on or call pitches. I didn't even have to put hit and runs on. I would, but they would get to the point where they understood what it took to win, and then they took it.
2: They could steal a base. It, on their own on their own and you wouldn't have if they a got with-
3: thrown out and it was a bad choice we'd bring them back we'd explain to them why it was a bad choice and then go again okay wow so <laughs> that's interesting yeah it got to the point in 2015 I'd sit there drink a cup of coffee those boys would go they knew what it took to win they knew how to win and sometimes it would drive the fans crazy I remember at a fan fest one time a guy goes why did you bunt Lorenzo Cain in game four, <laughs> game four of the playoffs. And I'm like, let me tell you something. I said, first of all, there's runners on first and second. Lorenzo Cain's hitting third. Lorenzo Cain bunted. Then Billy Butler got a base hit. and We were ahead two to nothing, right? I got a newsflash for you. I didn't put the bun on. <laughs> Lorenzo Cain knew what he needed to do to win a ball game. Now, we had 58 sacrifice bunts, I guarantee you I didn't put 10 of those on. Wow. You know, that these guys knew what it took to win, and they went out and they played to win. And it wasn't selfish baseball. It was winning baseball. And it was fantastic stuff to sit back and watch them grow, watch them have the confidence that they need to take control of their own game and their own destiny and then have success at it. Now let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. When you won the Daytona 500, what did you feel like? Elation. Elation. Okay. When I won the World Series, I didn't feel that. No? I felt a very strong contentment. Mm. Right? I felt very content because I had the ability, like I said, to go to the World Series eight times in my career. All right? We'd won it in 95. So, in 15, every time we'd win, the champagne celebrations would go on. I'd let the players go. Right? Yeah, go have it. I mean, go have fun. So. Hey, you coming to the Champagne Celebration? I'm going to come to the Champagne Celebration when we win the big one, right? So sure enough, I'll never forget, we were playing in New York, and the score was tied uh, 2-2 in the 12th inning. We just got the game-winning base hit, right? So now we got a one-run lead, and I'm thinking to myself, we just won the World Series, right? Well – for the first time in my life, our guys kept hitting, kept hitting, kept hitting. We scored four more runs. And I'm screaming, well, somebody make it out. Let's get somebody. this thing over with. You know? <laughs> somebody make it out. So finally, put Wade Davis out. Wade Davis won two, three. They came in and they said, okay, we're going to give you the world championship trophy. Nobody pops champagne until the commissioner leaves. I'm like, okay, that's fine. So, the commissioner gives us a trophy. We're all on national TV. My owner's there, my GM, me. So as soon as the commissioner leaves, I leave. And I went and I sat down in my office and I looked, and there's my GM, Date Moore. And we had fought this thing for years, you know. Kept trying to tell people what we believed. People had heard it before, they didn't want to hear it. I'm like, all right, we'll just have to show you, right? But it was a very strong sense of just, you know, content. Yeah. I I never did go into the the celebration, right? I just felt really, really good. They finally, the Mets finally kicked us out at five o'clock that that morning so we went back now i did have I, that didn't mean i wasn't drinking yeah you know i was still drinking but i wasn't champagneing, right so uh-huh. by the time i got back it was like seven o'clock our plane left at 10 so um i got everybody on the bus got on the plane and i'm sitting there and i had my son and at that point I had the air blowing on my face because it was getting a little warm, you know, <laughs> <laughs> from the night before. Yeah. And my phone rings. Well, I look at it. and said no caller ID. So the only people I know with no caller ID are Robin Yacht, the Hall of Famer, and Joe Torrey. Well, I figured it was Joe Torrey calling to congratulate me, right? So I pick up the phone and go, hello? And he goes, yes, is this Ned Yost? And I said, yeah, this is Ned Can you please hold for a call from the president of the United States? And it was Barack Obama calling to invite us to the White House. Wow. That was the first time that I understood that we might have done something special. Mm. When we got into Kansas City, the next day we had a parade with almost a million people in downtown. I mean, they had to park their cars on the freeway and walk to the parade route is when I started to understand that we did do something special. Yeah. And it was, it was really, really, it was really cool.
0: A couple years later, you how did, what happened at Kansas City a couple years later? How, how does that all work out?
3: Okay, what we did, and, and probably for me, my biggest regret was that we couldn't win back-to-back championships. Okay. right? Because we won in 15 and we just kind of really ran away, had the best record in the American League. Well, we had the same team, maybe a, a, a pitcher or two that, that had changed we were going to push through 16 to try to win the world championship again. Well, we ended up not doing it. 17, okay, we got these players, let's do it. Well, we got through 17 and trying to win another championship, we didn't take any of our really good players and trade them off for young prospects. So all of our players left for free agency, and you don't get anything back. So our cupboards were kind of bare.
0: Yeah, and so how is that? Unique to or not unique, how is that different to the run you could have had in the 90s? Uh, the players are there for a much shorter period of time, right? Today, right?
3: They they are, but it's a smaller market. It was a Kansas City is a smaller market than what is Atlanta, too, and we just couldn't afford. You know, we really? couldn't we couldn't afford to go out and spend on you know really big free agents. We had to develop our own team, and the thing about it was, once we got these kids to the big leagues, you got six years. Yeah, you got six years to make something happen. And if you don't make it happen, then these guys are moving on and becoming free agents because we didn't have the money to sign our best players to big contracts. We just didn't just didn't have it. Yeah. So I knew going into uh, eighteen and nineteen, it was going to be tough. Yeah. And I told Dayton, uh, my GM, I said, look, I know this is going to be tough. Uh, there's no better person than myself to be able to take it because I've got that equity in the city, you know, and, and we'll just do the best we can. And we really – we struggled. One Lost 100 games both years in a row. But the beauty of losing 100 games is you get top draft picks, right? And we got some – kids that are, we got a kid named Bobby Witt Jr. that uh, is a Chipper Jones type player. And and we've got some really, really good young pitchers that uh, should develop into something, you know, moving forward. So what are
0: you doing now uh, for baseball? Nothing? Nothing really. So how come, so listening to you talk, it's, there's no question that you're a a savant of the game. I mean, just you're, and you're with your motivational ability with your i mean you could be a public speaker for any for yeah. for for us for anybody you know you could work, you could go around and motivate the hell out of people how do you get how do you step away from that something you've known your whole life yeah knowing that you you would have an ass you could be an asset somewhere you could be a you, knowing you could make a difference in some in in some organization some way somehow how do you how well,
3: do you not i'm not completely adverse to that right now but the situation's got to be right and to be honest with you you know at the end of 18 and 19 losing 100 games I was burned out for sure I needed to go home I needed to go home and I needed to rest and the game has changed so much from when I came up you know but the problem that you run into is now again what defines a win you know and a lot of times these owners you're not going to win, and you can't get them to understand. you're not going to win without talent. So you either go out and buy a bunch of talent or you develop your own talent. Developing your own talent takes time. And if you just think you're going to go out and win, win-win, that's not going to happen. Yeah, right? So it takes time. It's hard finding somebody that has the patience, like Mr. Glass did, to, uh, you know, get through whatever it takes to, to become a world champion. And, I mean, he had his doubts. I mean, Zach Granke had his doubts. You know, we, Zach wanted to be traded, and I told Zach we're going to win, Zach. Just, he, he was a Cy Young Award pitcher. He goes, I don't believe it. I said, Zach, we're going to win. He goes, I don't believe it. You know, I've heard it too many times before. And we ended up trading Zach, and we got some players that were key guys in, in our championship run. But, you know, guys, it just uh, it just takes time to be able to, to build that Championship, so the situation has to be right, one. And two, it can't be about numbers. It's got to be about culture. It's got to be about family. It's got to be you, – you, you don't to, – to have a championship caliber organization, you got to be able to develop the talent, but you got to be able to develop the person too. You want them to be a good son. You want them to be a good dad. You want them to be a good husband. And, you know, that's all part of it. Instead of just looking at you thinking, okay, if you don't go – Two for four tonight. Your butt's on the bench. You know mm-hmm. you got to care for them. and and you have to find. It starts at the top, and if you got somebody at the top in the GM and the manager that all have the same philosophy, you can develop that. Yeah. It's just hard trying to find that nowadays.
0: You mentioned the labor strike in nineteen ninety four. You ended up um, mm-hmm. having some time. So Dad says, "Hey man, come come hit the road <laughs> with us." You become yeah. part. You you became part
3: of the team. Right. It was uh, the cool thing about it was we went on strike the middle of August. And um, they sent all the minor league guy, all the major league guys to minor league teams, right? So I ended up going to rookie ball for like a week, and their season got over. So it was uh, August 24th, something like that, 20, 28th, and um, your dad and I were going to go hunting in South Carolina. So we were going to meet uh, after the Michigan race. So I'll never, I'll never forget this. That Michigan race was the race that Ernie got in that wreck. Mm. And Ernie was really was going to die, right? So your dad flies in. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, and we were calling every half hour to see if Ernie had passed away. And we're sitting on this back porch. It was a beautiful night. I mean, a South Carolina night in August. It wasn't too hot. It was just beautiful. And we were sitting back there drinking a couple of beers. And your dad looked at me and he said, hey, you know, if this can happen to Ernie, this can happen to me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, Ernie's got a 30, Ernie's 30 points behind me. Ernie's got great equipment. He's a championship caliber driver. He's got a great team. If it can happen to him, it can happen to me. And I'm like, no, that can't happen to you. Because you know, he was bulletproof. He was 10 foot tall, right? Never thought that that would, that would happen to him. Right. Never. Yep. Right. So the next week we ended up hunting and, and, and we're having these like conversations and stuff because it, it was it really affect him that Ernie was that hurt. Next week the minor league season's all over. We got nothing to do. The first of September he calls me and goes, What are you doing? I ain't doing nothing. He goes, Come work on my race team. Help us win this seventh championship. I'm like, Well, yeah, maybe that would be cool, right? And he goes, yeah, you get to see nine races. You get to see some tracks you probably never see again. He said, come help us. So I'm like, okay, sure enough. Our well, first race was Darlington, right? And I'll never forget, I was the rehydration engineer. <laughs> People would ask, what do you do? I'm a rehydration engineer. Keep walking, right? They didn't know. I just, like, gave them the water, right? During the pit stops. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing, and nobody told me anything, right? Yeah. So they give you this gallon of water and you mix in this electrolyte solution. You can't give him too much. Give him three inches of give him three inches and because they, you don't want him peeing his pants during the race, he just <laughs> will sip it, right? So yeah. I'm like, okay. So I'm standing with this pole, and the first pit stop, I'm nervous as hell, right? <laughs> so he goes, eh. so I'm here like inching this pole out. When I mention it, the water's going like this. I look at your dad, I look at this, he goes, Stop, stop. So I stop like this. He goes, All right, so put a little stop like this he goes hey tell ned to only put three inches of water in that cup it's going to splash on the radio and short it out and i'm thinking to myself i only got three inches in there just give me a chance to get used to this right (laughs) so after that i figured out real quick that you extend the pole get it under the rear tire changer's butt and when he jumps you just swing that pole Boom, into that little hole right there, right? Well, I was a natural rehydration engineer from that point on. <laughs> so it was it was really cool to be able to watch your dad work and, and and his mindset. And like I said, it started it started there when he finished second. And, you know, I'm thinking, okay, this has got to be a joke, but it wasn't. He was serious about it. The next week, they're at North Wilkesboro, right? And that was the day that Jeff Bodine lapped the entire field. But the thing that I enjoyed about that was your dad was just busting ass, man. He was fighting. I think he ended it like four or five laps down. But, I mean, he was running like he was leading, right? So the spotter came on and goes, Richard, when there's an the caution, I need to tell you something. And Dale goes, tell him now. And he goes, "Now I'll wait for the caution. He goes, I said tell him now. He goes, Bobby Hamilton came up and said you're being too aggressive with him. If he catches up to you, he's putting you in the wall. <laughs> Dale goes, you tell Bobby Hamilton that if he wants, I will gladly meet him under the grandstands after the race, but don't be wrecking no damn race cars. Yeah. Right? And I'm like, oh, wow, this is my type of sport right here. right?" And he never ended up catching up to him. But as the races went on, I would watch his competitiveness, and I would watch how he would never quit. didn't matter what the situation was. Now, I'm starting to think, you know, I'm playing in a baseball game, and we're down seven or eight, nothing going into the eighth inning. My mind starts to wander, well, like, okay, maybe we'll get him tomorrow, right? That never entered your dad's mind, yeah. ever. He just – he if he was 10 laps down with 11 to go, he was running just as hard as if he won. So I'm watching all this, right? And we get into Charlotte here, and it's the October race. I'll mean, i never forget this because this was one of the coolest lessons I think that I learned from your dad, was that I remember it was a gorgeous day. We pushed the Black 3 out onto Pitt Road, and the crowd was going nuts, right? So, get your dad ready. Get him in the car. At this point, he qualified 38th. Rusty Wallace was second behind him, 208 points behind him, right? Mm -hmm. So, Start the race, they go five laps, and there's a huge wreck, all right? And your dad is in the middle of this wreck, and he ends up hitting. Bill Elliott lifts up the, his car, and the whole front end of his car's messed up, right? Well, he comes on the radio, and he's like, my front end's this, my cast or my f- – Got four flat tires, my caster, my camber. I'm like, this is all Greek to me, right? I got some water for you if you want. (laughs) Three inches, three inches. (laughs) So, so thirsty? He he comes in, and I'm like panicking, right? I know that he's got a 200 point lead. I'm looking for Rusty Wallace, and Rusty's running like 10th. He comes in, and not to get lapped, he comes in like four times, right? Trying to beat and bang the car out. By the time they started the race again, he's right back to 39th, and Rusty's running like ninth, right? So as the race goes on, he's getting a little better. He's getting a little better, and he comes up to, you know, 35th and 32nd, and the race is coming. He comes up to 30th and 25th and gets up to 19th, and, you know, getting towards the three-quarters of the race, and you hear NASCAR come on the, the radio going, caution, caution, we got a smoker coming out of four. And I'm looking, and all of a sudden, this car billowing smoke comes out of turn four, and we all look, it's Rusty Wallace. He just blew up, right? So now, like, we're giddy, right? All these points that we thought we were losing, we got back, plus we're gonna gain more points. So we're, like, excited, right? So your dad's out there busting his ass, busting his ass, they get down to 25 laps to go, and they bring him in and gets two tires. Goes back out and gets to the point where there's 10 laps left, and Ricky Rudd wrecks Jeff Gordon when they come in. And I mean, Jeff Gordon pushed up on him, Ricky gets behind him, and then squirrels them, boom, they both go to the wall, <laughs> right? So there's 10 laps left. Andy Petrie comes on the radio, and Dale's running fourth. There's nine cars on the lead lap. And Andy comes on and says, Dale, see if we can't get a jump, see if we can't finish third. Your dad comes on the radio and goes, Andy, I want four new tires. He goes, no, 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 no you stay out there. you don't Stay out there and see if you can get a jump. See if you can finish third. He goes, no, I want four new tires. He goes, Dale, this is crazy, man. Just stay out there. By the time you go, there's going to be four laps left, right, or three laps left. You're not going to be able to make up the time. There's nine cars on the lead lap. You can conceivably come down to ninth place. See if you can get a jump and finish third place. And Dale came on the way. He goes, I didn't come here to finish third. I'm at the entrance of Pit Road. Andy goes, okay, come on in. We're going to put four tires on this car. We're going to sit back and watch you finish eighth. <laughs> <laughs> Your dad said, I'll tell you guys what. Put four tires on this, and you guys sit back and watch me win this race. right?" He pulls in like this. I'm trying to give a little water. Right? <laughs> he won no part of that. He was glaring at Andy, right? just glaring at him. Puts the four tires on, drops the jack, he takes off. right? They started up with four to go and he's in sixth place, and he comes around, and he's in fifth, right? And he comes around, and he's in fourth, and they're running, and he's in fourth, and he comes around, and he's in third, and he's starting to make some ground up on Morgan Shepard when the race ends. He finishes third, right? So get out of the, get out of the car, he goes upstairs. Well, I could tell he kind of had the ass, right? And, but I thought it was cool. I thought he was doing great, right? So I did. I went back, and I watched the replay this week of that race and I watched his interview afterwards and they got out and they said, Dale, why, why'd you come in? Well, it's four to go. And he goes, well, he said, I knew 25 laps that I only took two tires. I knew I was dead in water with those two tires. I wasn't going to do that. And I, you know, I felt like if we got some good tires on this car, I could win that race. The problem was I got long run tires instead of short run tires. Mm. If I had short run tires, I for sure would have caught Morgan Shepard and I might've had a chance of winning the race. But You know, we we ended up starting 38th. It was good. And and at that point, they had a 330-point lead going into the last three races, right? So he goes upstairs to the condo, pull the car back to start tearing apart. I'm going to go up and see Dale. I go upstairs, and I'll never forget, I walked through the door of the condo, and Teresa, Taylor, and your grandmama was standing in the corner. And I should have known, you know, that he was pissed, right? Because he had his back. On this table looking out at the racetrack, he was eating. So I came over, and I put my arms around him from behind and put my head on his shoulder. And I said, man, that was awesome. That was a great race. (laughs) Right? He goes, great race. What was great about that? (laughs) And I said, well, he goes, do you know what happened out there? He said, do you even understand what happened out there? (laughs) I said, no, I don't know. He goes, they wanted me to be mediocre. That's what happened. Yeah, we started 38. Yeah, we got in a wreck. Yeah, Rusty blew up. him, And everybody was satisfied with the points that we got. And they lost sight of the fact that we could have won that race. And he said they wanted me to be mediocre. And again, this was the only second time. He pulled me face to face, and he said, Ned, you never, ever settle for mediocrity. Never in your life do you do it. You know why? Because you don't have to. That's why. Mm. And to that point, I got it on my arm. Never settle for mediocrity. Never. It's my, my thought. <laughs> it's what I live by from that point on. And he was right. You know, I was guilty. I was so happy that he finished third starting yeah. 38. I didn't think about winning. I could care less if he won. He was going to finish third. But he changed my mindset and things like that. Yeah, there's days we're going to be mediocre. But you don't settle for it. You work hard the next day so that you're not. And that was your dad. That was what he, uh, you know, that's what he thought, and that's how he, you know, he lived his life. And it was it was crazy. So when you say that he taught you to
0: compete, this was the this was the moments during that little run for that seventh championship
3: where that was instilled. No doubt, him. no doubt. I learned so much about never giving up, staying focused staying being a leader on that team because he drug us along. Yeah. You know, if we slacked off a little bit mentally, uh uh-uh, he wouldn't have it. He pulled us along. He got us all back in line. And it was – that was, you know, he taught me how to be a leader of a group of guys. Young players, what they want is discipline. They want organization and structure. And if you provide that for them, they're going to follow along with you. it's the same thing your dad did. I mean, he, he he made sure that you were going to be on the same page with him, and if you weren't on the same page with him, there was going to be a problem. But RCR and his group, 98% of the time, were on the same page with him. They they never quit.
2: Staying focused, never giving up, staying hydrated. Am I right? Oh, for sure. That's right. Yep. You got to stay hydrated. You got to stay hydrated. A hydration engineer right there. I've never heard of another hydration well, engineer. So I you know, did your
3: job. I knew I did good. We were in Phoenix and I knew that I hydrated him good because at the end of the race <laughs> he come boiling. I mean, into the holler, right? Jumped out of the car and I'm standing there. He's going like this. Opened up the refrigerator, took out a half a gallon of milk, and started peeing in it. <laughs> 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 He's gone. Oh, oh. <laughs> he had nowhere to go. <laughs> and he was about to wet his pants. But <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, I did my job there. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. So oh, that me. was that was cool.
0: I selfishly wish I knew how many um, <clears throat> Major League Baseball players that you educated about my dad or –
3: all of them. Yeah. Uh, I'm they,
0: wondering how many of them, like, it may connected with that. All of them. Yeah. They all uh, –
3: every spring training, uh, uh, every one of my meetings went, ar- you know, about what I learned on that race team and the commitment that it took to be a champion and yeah. the focus that it took to be a champion.
0: So, so. there was um, – in, in, in conversations with you on our pre-interviews, uh, you mentioned a story in, in, in on a hunting trip in Texas – the year I won the, uh, my Xfinity Series championship. Right. So y'all were on a hunt yes. when all this went down?
3: Mm-hmm. Really? Uh, yeah. It was your first championship. Huh. And um, <clears throat> we were hunting, and we, it was cool because earlier in the day, for all these times we'd gone uh, to Encino Ranch, your dad never bought Swisher Sweets, right? Oh. So he bought this little pack of Swisher Sweets. So I'm like, oh, I'm – not smoking them cigars. I mean, I've tried them before. So anyway, we're sitting there, and we had a beer, and he lit up a Swisher Suite. And he's sitting there and all of a sudden, he throws his head back, and he goes, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> you all right, man? You all right? And he goes, oh. He goes, you ain't going to believe it. And I said, what? And he goes, the smell of the dirt the beer and the cigar smoke took me back to when I was 10 years old watching my dad race a dirt track. Mm -hmm. He said the feeling was as strong right then and there as it was when I was 10 years old. He goes, what a weird feeling that was. And I thought that was really cool, you know, that he could relive that. So we go back later in the afternoon, and we're watching you in Victory Lane, the championship, right? Yeah. So uh, I'm thinking to myself, "Why? why aren't you there? I mean, why aren't we off hunting and Dale Jr. is getting a championship? Why aren't you there? And he said, you know why? He goes, Because he's worked his ass off. That's why. He's had a great year. That's why. And I want it to be all about him. If I was there, they'd be interviewing me. They'd be wanting to know what I think when it's his day. And I want it all to be about him. Mm-hmm. And that made sense to me a little bit, especially when you won in Texas. And then all they wanted to do was interview him. Yeah. You know, and he finally got out of there. And I'm like, oh, that makes that makes sense. Yeah. But he, you know, he would, he, we would laugh because there at the end, he complained that you were on a computer all the time. Right? He did, yeah. Yeah. Dale Jr.'s on a computer all the time. What the hell is he doing on a computer? I ain't playing some damn racing game. And I'm like, <laughs> well, what racing game is he playing? I don't know, some damn racing game, right? So I got, listen, I got the, well, that sounds pretty fun, right? So I figured out it was papyrus, right? The papyrus. papyrus, yeah. Yeah, papyrus, yeah. yeah. I bought one. Son of a bitch, I'm on the computer all night long racing this game, right? I didn't race. You raced against people, right? I'd set the the, the number down to like 85. That's yeah. the only way I could, could compete. Yeah, And I was on that thing. Hours and hours and hours. Hey, Dale Jr. still on the computer? He goes, yeah, he's on the computer. I'm like, that damn kid. And I'm sitting there on the... You know, I got my <laughs> so then when iRacing came out, right, I'm like, okay, this is really going to be cool. And you probably were on that beta group when it first came yeah. out, right? I wanted on it bad. Really? I wanted on it, right? Uh, I couldn't get on it. I kept sending in emails. Can I get on this? No, no, no. So the one that headed that up was John Henry. Yep. The owner of the Boston Red yes. Sox, right? So we're playing in Boston. <laughs> this is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> All the roads are leading
4: here
0: to Dead so, Yost. <laughs> so
3: we're sitting in Boston, and my owner's in the owner's suite right next to it, right? And John Henry comes by to say hello. So I'm sitting there, and right in the middle of the game, sixth inning, and goes, Mr. Henry, hey, I'm Ned Jones. Hey, nice to meet you. I've been dying to get on that beta <laughs> list. Can you please help me get on iRacing beta list? And he goes, you'll have it tomorrow, right? My owner's like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> but that was so much fun for me at that yeah. time. I mean, I was on it all the time. Yeah. Absolutely enjoyed it. And I could see how you enjoy it. Now, yeah. your dad wouldn't enjoy it because he got to do the real thing. And at that time, we weren't really, we weren't, we weren't being able to, to race. And. But it was fun to be able to do that. And actually, for me, in racing, I, I, I had no idea how to set up a car, right? Sure. So I would search the internet, and I finally found a setup where I could run a truck race and win at Daytona. And I won like five or six races there. Yeah. And that was my only heyday. But my first race that I ever won, we— pushing, going into the finish line, and I was like, I'm not lifting, and I pushed up, and I banged the guy next to me into the wall, right? Well, the guy's cussing me after the race. Hey, you banged me, I just simply teched back, suck on it, meat. (laughs) 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 My first win, right? So he uh, he was pissed. But, you know, it was suck on it,
2: meat. Another T-shirt idea. I mean, you're just dropping them left and right. Suck on it, meat. (laughs) But,
3: you know, he – at the end there, it was really cool to see. Because it was so weird, Dale, when you were little, right? And it was a different generation, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean – And the thing that that I I really enjoy now is that guys like you, guys like my son, players nowadays, they're breaking the cycle. You know, back then, if you watched Leave it to Beaver – dad's wore coats and ties to dinner at home, right? And in our day when we grew up, we worked hard and, and that was we were to provide for the family. But nowadays it's about de- being a dad and you're dad to your girls, my son's a dad to his girls by the way. I got Isla Jean, too. Really? So, yeah, yep. Yeah. And and my players when I played in the big leagues, wives never went on a road trip ever. But when I managed in the big leagues, the wives went on every road trip. And the kids went on every road trip. And the wives would get up and go shopping, and the dads had to babysit. So it was hmm. a different – the cycle was kind of broken on, on the mindset where that we just focus on our task at hand and being successful because I, I was just guilty of it too. But at the end, to see how his mindset was towards you – was was remarkable. I asked him one time, I said, um, and, and you know, just a figure speech. I said, How's your bo- how's your boy Steve Park doing? Right? You know, this he goes, Steve Park ain't my boy, Dale Junior's my boy. Mm. And I'm like, Well, I know Dale Jr.'s your boy, but I meant no, he's not. Dale Jr.'s my boy, Steve Park ain't my boy. And I'm like, Okay, well then how's your driver, Steve Park, doing? <laughs> <laughs> right? But he he would get to that point and he would call me and, and say, Hey Junior, we're out in California, right? And he goes, Jr. wants to move to California. And I said, why? He goes, because he can get up at eight o'clock in the morning there. He says yes. he can't get up. He can't get up until eight, <laughs> 11 o'clock at home in California. He's up every time at eight o'clock he wants to move out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So I remember telling him that. Yeah. I'm like, I think I was born on the wrong side of the country. <laughs> yeah.
3: But he, he was starting to get a kick out of all that yeah. stuff. Oh, you know? really? Yeah. I mean, he, <laughs> he was coming around. He, he, coming around. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he really was. And it was it was interesting to. To see all that, you named your you have a daughter. Named I do have Isla? a daughter. No, I've got a granddaughter. Granddaughter named Isla. Isla Jean. Really? Yeah. How uh-huh. about that? Yeah. Well, you didn't think you were the only one that named her. No, kid Ila, but I'm did just it? wondering like the <laughs>
0: coincidences here. Mm-hmm. How the the how him and dad became such great friends. Dad didn't. Not a lot of people connected to dad. Yeah. And, right. All right. He didn't give people the time. But plus, it took a certain type personality. It did. <clears throat> he likes iRacing. racing. Yeah. Has a granddaughter named Isla. Yeah. I mean. Let me ask you this. Some weird, you know, (coughs) universe
3: moon. I'm trying to remember the name of this guy because your dad told me a story when we were on a hunting trip. Do you know much about your dad's career when he was like 16 and 17? Not really. Do you have any idea who he was working for at that time? Because he told me that your granddad got him a job working on a race team when he was 17 years old. And... The guy that owned the race team had been in a pit road accident and had both his legs cut off at the knee. Hmm. And he, he said he was a cocky 17-year-old, was working. And back in those days, the race shops were like behind a house. Yeah. you know, like garage. He said he would park, have to go through this fence to get into the race shop or the garage, and there was a goat there. And your dad would get the goat all whipped up right and the goat would be chasing around he kicked the goat and the goat be chasing around he'd go flying through the door and the goat bam would hit the door right so one day (laughs) he gets the goat all all riled up and can't get the door shut quick enough and the goat's in the race shop tearing stuff up the guy with the no legs tries to stop it it hits him knocks him to the ground right (laughs) they finally get the goat pull him out the door the guy told dale your daddy goes look Knock it off. He goes, I'm tired of this crap. I'm about to whoop your ass. And your dad says, whoop my ass. <laughs> okay, right. Next day, he comes in, gets the goat whipped up, comes flying through the door, and your dad said, here comes the goat. Look out. Here comes the goat. Here comes the goat. That's it. And the goat was outside, but here comes the goat. Guy walked over to your dad and said, let's go. He goes, I'm whooping your ass. Let's go right now. He goes, <laughs> okay. Goes outside, right? Your dad said he walked out the door, and as soon as he walked out the door, this guy jumped on his back. He said, I went to the ground, and before I knew it, bam, bam, he clicked his legs off. He said, you ever fought a guy with no legs? And I said, no. He goes, this dude was on me every time I'd move. He was pounding my head into the dirt. He was smacking my head. He was hitting me on like this, finally to the point I said, look, I give. I give. I'll be good. I'll be good. I promise I'll be good. <laughs> and the guy rolled off me and he goes, look, I'm not having any of this. You shape up. Dale goes, I'll be good. He said, I had hair and dirt all on my face. He said he looked at me and he pointed his finger at me and goes, Dale, don't ever make me take my legs off on you again. <laughs> and I always thought that that was such a cool story to wow. be able to tell. You know, back in his early days. And, you know, he didn't didn't really—we didn't really discuss much about the relationship with his dad. You could just tell that he worshipped him and loved him. Yeah. For sure.
0: Yeah. You, uh, you've you got a couple things that you wanted to share with us, and, and we're going to call it the rest of the story. Yeah. You've listened to the, uh, the podcast a little bit. For but, years. Yeah. And so <clears throat> there's a story from one of our episodes about Dad getting in a fight with someone who— uh, Shot a deer on
3: his property, right? Oh, right? I love that story. Yeah. yeah, Blaney told that story. Yeah, right.
0: well, we, we we talked about it with 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 Blaney, probably, but um, I told the story. So basically, you know, there was a dad had a high fence on his property, he has a bunch of deer that he's that he's raising, a herd that he's managing, and a guy that came to work on a tractor or a repairman, uh, bulldozer guy. Yep, he came out there to work on it and fix it and uh, saw some of the deer, went back and hung out with a buddy that evening and got brave and decided to jump the fence and shoot one, and they did.
3: Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if they – I think they shot it through the fence. Oh. Because your dad heard the shot, and the farm manager was with them. Your dad said, that's it, let's go. They went out there, and they found the deer, right? So they sat back in the woods and waited, and they waited for like two hours. Really? And all of a sudden, truck pulls up. Guy hops the fence, walks over to the deer, starts to bend down to drag it, right? So your dad jumped up and told him to hold it right there. Well, the guy turned around and hauled ass, right? Well, your dad had a gun, and he shot, boom, hold it right there. And the guy kept running. He ejected the shell and was so pissed, he jammed it. So he said, luckily for him, he jammed it, threw the gun on the ground, ran after him. The guy was climbing over the fence when your dad grabbed him and started just beating the heck out of him, right? He said he knew he broke his hand on the second punch, but he was letting him have it. I mean, boom, killed one of his deer, right? Boom, letting him have letting him have And he said the only reason he stopped is because the farm foreman had a bad heart, and he was screaming, Dale, stop, you're killing him, you're killing him. And Your dad said he was afraid he was gonna give him a heart attack. (laughs) So it was funny because he ends up getting his black cast on his hand, and he said it was a a race shop incident, right? So that Daytona, that next Daytona, of course, your dad was always winning all the stuff going up to Daytona, and the Daytona 500 might have been the, I don't know, might have been the 90 Daytona or something. They asked Ernie Irvin, how can you stop Dale Earnhardt from winning the Daytona 500? And Ernie said on national TV, just get a really, really big guy and go shoot one of his deer. <laughs> right? So it kind of went over everybody's head. Yeah. Well, a couple years later, I mean, I just envision you've been in the Deerhead shop there's monsters in there yeah. right so and and I've actually mounted three or four of those deer in the Deerhead shop for them, right on trips that we go we kill them not mountain. so we're in the deer head shop and we walk through the door and then there's another little door right there I think that was like the dyno or engine shop or something right there right where the bays were over here and on the wall was a little horn mount and I mean it was a little eight point about like that yeah so in the deer head shop, I'm like, Dad, gum, you got all these monsters. What the hell is that? I said, Dear, that guy shot. I said, You beat the hell out of that guy for that little eight point? And he goes, That was a big steer I had on the farm at that time. He goes, Yeah, it was a little eight <laughs> <park. I'm> point. <laughs> kidding. That was a, that big.
2: I'm you know, stunned at this, by so the way. So was what I. A, what a development this is to <laughs> this story. Yeah. So
3: was I. He would not having none of it. He shot his deer, and he was going to pay for it. God Almighty! That was his biggest deer at the In time. In my
2: head, I just assumed it was Bullwinkle out there that so he just had I. to go whooping some guy's ass for. <laughs>
3: Absolutely, so did I. So did
0: I. What's the rest of the story about Rusty throwing a water bottle at Dad?
3: Well, that was at that was at uh at, at Bristol, right? And we laughed so hard when Rusty threw that water bottle. The next day, we next day aired an Atlanta Braves dual ear flap batting helmet with the instructions, wear this in all post-race interviews. (laughs) (laughs) Really? So in case he got another water bottle off his head, uh, he'd have at least some protection. That's funny. Uh
0: So there's a story about Ron Hornaday getting fired and his blowout with Ty Norris and dad.
3: Yeah, yeah, that was – because I asked your dad about that, you know – he didn't He didn't let on that that was happening, but I kind of got a little bit of a sense that that might happen. And then when I saw it happen, I called him. I said, How did that go? He goes, Oh, he goes, That was rough. He didn't say anything about taking a phone call, right? But Ty, when they came in, uh, Ty was sitting there, and Hornaday started getting really pissed at Ty. And, you know, like, F you, Ty, you knew about this. Why didn't you tell me about this? And it was just really going off on Ty Norris, right? So your dad, your dad told me, he goes, look, I told him, hey, Ron, calm down. Just calm down. Take it easy. Ron Hornaday looked me square in the eye and he said, yeah, well, fuck you too, and turned around and walked out the door. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I, I had a whole new appreciation oh, yeah. for Ron Hornaday after that. I'm sure he did. And uh, Dale, your dad called him that night, and they, you know, they, they talked it out, and they were, they were fine after that but yeah. you know ty was i mean uh ron was so pissed that he wasn't he wasn't taking no prisoners that day. no out of I curiosity
2: out of curiosity like w- which episode did that come up that made you think to tell that Hornady. story so it was hornaday because we've he had ty and ron. he so what did ron
3: say to us that 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 didn't finish the story like how far did he get he got to where he was getting all over ty but he didn't say anything about Dale, That and what really pissed him off was that Dale took a phone call when he was getting fired. Oh, he took a phone call. That's what he said. Yeah. He took a phone call when he was firing your dad, but your dad said it was from um, Bill France, so yeah. he had to take the call. That's right. He had that's to take right. the call. And then he was telling him to calm down, and that's when Hornaday looked him square in the eye. and said, F you, buddy. Yeah. Good Lord. I can totally see Hornaday doing that. Yeah, me too. Like,
0: absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because Hornaday was a – Kind of a, a version of Dad in a yeah, way, you know he was
3: very, very, it, very leathered and rough and yeah. pretty honest, yeah. no no bull yeah, he was, I liked Hornaday, but I liked him just a little bit better after that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I don't know as good of friends as I was with your dad i wouldn't I wouldn't even go there with your dad, no, I mean, I, no matter how mad I got, and I never got mad at your dad, yeah. and your dad never got mad at me, but I would never I would never go Man. there, and then um the last one of those. Was Jeremy Mayfield. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. And Jeremy Mayfield was talking on the podcast about the race at Pocono. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. how yeah, he yeah. came in. Rattled and his cage. Rattled yeah. his cage, right? And he goes, yeah, your dad was cool with it, right? I just said, I'm going to rattle his cage, and your dad was cool with it, and your dad was cool with it on Sunday. And then Mayfield on Monday, I just rattled his cage, I just rattled his cage. Your dad was cool with it on Monday. Tuesday, started to get to him rattle his cage rattle his cage Wednesday he heard rattle his cage rattle his cage your dad got on the phone and called Jeremy Mayfield and he said look I've heard enough of rattle your cage I hear it one more time I'm coming over there and I'm going to bloody your nose and that was the last time you heard Jeremy Mayfield say I'm going to rattle your cage <laughs> no <laughs> yeah no kidding uh huh Yep, Ned, right.
2: Ned, can you just move here and be part of our interviews? <laughs> and anybody that has an Earnhardt story, yep. you can go ahead and tell what happens after that because I think
3: you pretty much have a vantage point nobody has. We we did, and we, we, did, we and it was cool to be able to have that friendship. And it's amazing. Know, and 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 he tried to be so sly, like when he first when I first knew your dad, the only thing was there was the old bush shop, you yeah. know, and he built the house, and then all of a sudden the truck shopping i'm going to get into the truck racing so we drove by it one day and the truck was outside and i said who's your sponsor he goes well, i can't tell you that I go, your sponsor's napa well, how do you know that look at the truck it's napa colors and he goes Ooh, well you better pull that truck inside then if you can figure it out <laughs> yeah right? so but it, it was fun to be able to do that but i want to you know Kind of go back a little bit, too, if, if it's cool with you. Play. Talk about yeah, yeah, Daytona, yeah. all right? I mean, I know it's, it's tough, but it's tough on all of us. But I remember that day uh, in Daytona. I called him that morning, and I said, good luck, man. Wishing, uh, well, I'm going to wish you luck. And he goes, you coming to the race? I said, no, I'm not coming to the race. I said, but I'll be there tonight afterwards to spend the night on the boat. And he knew what that meant because if he didn't win – At Daytona, or one of his cars didn't win at Daytona. He was the first one on that plane headed to Mooresville, right? He was going home. So when he won the Daytona 500, I finally got a hold of him about 10 o'clock that night. And he was well into the celebration, right? Yeah. And he's like, Where are you? Why aren't you here? You need to be here with me. I'm like, Hell, I can't. It's 12 o'clock. I'm 60 miles away. And by the time I get there, it's going to be 12 o'clock. I'm going to get drunk. i got to be back here at 5 o'clock. I said, I, I, won't, I can't make it. He goes, you should be here. You should be here with me. You should enjoy this with me. And I made a point from that time on that if he ever won or, the, or one of his cars won, I was going to be there. You know, I was going to enjoy it with him. So I called him that day, told him I'll see him that night. He laughed, said okay. He knew what that meant, that either he was going to win or you were going to win, or Michael was going to win, one of the two, right, or he's going to be gone. So the race is going on, race is going on, and I'm sitting there, like, timing it, right? All right, we got five laps left, Mike's winning, Dale Jr. second, Big Dale's third. Oh, man, if Mike wins this race, I'm thinking to myself, what a party we're going to have tonight. I mean, Mike's never won a race. We're going to have a blast, right, we're going to have so much fun. We get down to the last lap. And boom, that's when everything happens, right? Well, Michael goes on to win. You finish second, right? So I'm thinking, well, Dale's going to be pissed, but we're still going to have a blast. Mike's won. I mean, your dad really got to enjoy Michael Walsh. We were going to have fun, right? So I'm looking, thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to give it an hour, and then I'm going to get my car. I'm going to Daytona because he's got to put Mike's car in. He's the owner. He's got to put Mike's car in Daytona, USA, the next day. So I'm looking at it. And then they pan back to Kenny Schrader and Kenny walks up to the car, puts the window net and jumps back and goes like this. So I'm looking at him, what the hell is it going on, right? So all of a sudden they got people all around the car and they're looking at it and they start cutting the roof off. And I went into severe panic at that time. I mean severe. Because a couple of years earlier, your dad was racing at Talladega, and Ernie Irvin clipped them, mm-hmm. right? Hit the wall <clears throat> sideways. They hit in the windshield of the car, and the car just blew up, right? And they wouldn't even show the car on TV. They kind of figured the worst. All of a sudden, they pan to the car, and they're pulling your dad out like the back window, right? And he's all hunched over, and he's all bent up. Gets in the ambulance, and I finally get him hold him that night and I said man are you all right and he goes man he said you know how they say things really slow down in those situations because it was like slow motion I hit the wall I could see the sparks coming up through the window net I could see the cars coming at me and he said the car hit my windshield if it hit the roof I'd have been done but it hit the windshield and just exploded and he said by the time I got stopped I'm trying to figure out what pieces I have left, right? So I said, well, what's going on? He goes, well, I got a broken collarbone, I got three broken ribs, and a split brisket. That's your dad, right? Split brisket. I said, you dumbass. I said, broken collarbone, broken ribs, split brisket? Why are they pulling you out the back window? He goes, let me tell you something. He goes, I will never allow them to cut my roof off. I don't want my family, I don't want my friends, I don't want anybody to think that I'm in trouble. So if you ever see him cutting my roof off, you know your old buddy's in trouble, right? Mm. So I went into severe panic at that time. And like the old cartoons, I went in four different, boom, I mean, one arm went that way, I'm just panicking, right? I'm running, I get in the car and I'm driving to Daytona and I get a hold of Mike Collier and I said, Mike, what's going on? He goes, I don't know, they just took him to the hospital. I don't know, I don't know, I'll let you know, I don't know. I said, okay, all right, well let me know, I'm on my way. I said, if he's gotta spend the night in the hospital, we'll spend the night in the hospital. If we get to go back to the boat, we'll go back and have a good time. He goes, all right. So about a half hour later, we'd just passed a sign that said 30 miles to Daytona, and the phone rang. It was Mike. And Mike said, uh, he goes, Ned, he's gone. And I said, gone? What do you mean he's gone? Where did he go? He can't go anywhere. He's got to put the car in Daytona, USA. He's can't be gone. Where did he go? What do you mean he's gone? What do you mean he's gone? Where did he go? And he goes, he didn't make it. Right? I pulled over, and I must have cried on the side of that road for a half hour. Went back home, and I think I cried all night long, Right. By the time I got up, the next day at 4.30, I went into the ballpark, and, I mean, I got right to the door, and I just broke down crying again, right? But it was a weird feeling because I could hear your dad say, Knock it off! you know. So I kind of got it back together. And that week, the only salvation that I had during that time that I could kind of really live with this was we had gone on a hunting trip to Iowa. In December. And I remember watching the Winston Cup Bank when he finished second. And he finished his speech. And he said, All right, I'll see you all next year. I'm going hunting. And I was sitting downstairs in my basement all by myself, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going with you. All right. So I fly in to Iowa the next day. He had already been there. Him and Mike were there. They went into town. So I was sitting there talking to the guy that owns a farm, Don Kiskey, and I could hear the door open, it was your dad. And he walked in and I'm talking to Don, right? Well, your dad came over and he put his arm around me and he kissed me on the cheek. And I hugged him, you know? And I'm thinking, okay, this is cool, you know, I guess, you know, so I'm hugging him, right? So we're hunting and we're having a really, really good time. After the second day of hunting, it snows 16 inches, right? (laughs) So your dad had a sponsorship deal with Budweiser in Texas, and him and Mike were trying to talk about, you know, is it safe to go? Is right. it safe to fly, you know? And um, Bill Jordan's over there in the corner going, you can't go. No, you got to stay here, Dale. You can't go. Too dangerous. Nope, nope. Too much ice. Too much snow. You can't go. You can't go. <laughs> and Mike and Dale are talking. They're talking. And Bill's like, you can't go. Too much snow. You can't go. You can't go. And finally, your dad had enough. He turned and goes, Bill, shut the hell up. It was I'm trying to make a decision over here. He said, I got a sponsor that is waiting for me to be there. It's a $10 million sponsor. You don't give me $10 million. You stand over there, sit the, shut the hell up, and let me make my mind up what I need to do. All right, well, Bill sat there got, like, real weird in the room. and quiet, right? <laughs> Bill kind of hunched down like this. Well, I jumped up. I said, hey. I said, the only reason he's saying that, there's only one reason. There's only one reason we want you to stay all of us. And that reason is, we love you. That's why. We love you, man. We just love you. We don't want you to leave. We love you. You're a great friend. You're fun to be around. We love you. And I walked over and I hugged him. He got this big smile on on his face, right? Well, Bill Jordan's still sitting in the corner going, well, I don't feel the love. (laughs) (laughs) But but when it was all said and done, I got a chance to tell him I loved him. And that helped me a lot, you know, to get through it. But going through that week, it was tough. But the worst part of for me was Rockingham. And the reason for that was your dad would never miss a race. It didn't matter what. I saw an interview one time, and they asked him, Dale, if you couldn't be a race car driver for some reason, what would you do? And your dad looked right in the camera, and he goes, I'd be a race car driver. He wouldn't miss that race. And when your dad wasn't there, I knew it was real. Yeah, You know, and that, that to this point on, he is, I wore number three in memory of him because what he taught me and what he helped me achieve, you know, I don't think I would have achieved near what I achieved without him in my life and how I got the opportunity to, to, you know, be around him and learn, uh, from him, some of the stuff that, uh, you know, that I learned, I don't think I I would have had near the success that I had.
0: Do you think, do you look back on that moment where you're in that hunting lodge and and you told him how you felt about him? Do you look back on that moment? Like you say, like you're coincidentally or unknowingly, you're able to tell him in that moment something that. It
3: it was weird, Dale. I mean, he's never, I mean, he's never put his arm around me and kissed me on the cheek i've never told him that i loved him right when i watched that race and i still kind of flash back to the way he put his arms around you before the race and hugged you Mm -hmm. and was hugging Teresa. i i've never seen him really do that before to that extent yeah you know it was just it was real it was uh just kind of surreal you know at, at that time because you know going back to that that night in um South Carolina, I just didn't think that he could get hurt. I just didn't think he could. I just thought that he was, you know, I just thought he was bulletproof, really. Yeah. Really just, I mean, and to this this day, I think about it all the time, how proud he would have been of me when we won the world championship. But more than ever, when I look at you now, I just can't even imagine how proud he would be of you. The man that you've become, the person that you've become, I mean, we talked about it earlier, you were so shy in the early days, you wouldn't even look at me, you wouldn't talk to me, um, you know, it was just, you were, it was hard to get any engagement out of you, you know what I mean, look at you now, look at the man you've become and look at what you've accomplished and everything that he ever wanted for you back in the day, you've become it, you know? And I just can't imagine how proud that he would be right now with his granddaughters and with uh you know what you what you've accomplished and what you're doing in your life right now uh, it, I just think that he would just be beaming.
0: Yeah. yeah. Man, I'm telling you. It's a treat for me to hear those things, especially from you and it's hard to explain how nice this has been to yeah. sit here and listen to to your your comments and just listen to. I I knew y'all were friends and and I knew that that meant a great deal to you and I knew that he only had a couple people in his life yep. like that. And uh, I regret that I hadn't connected with you
3: more. Well, that's fine. I mean, and, I knew you were busy. Well, And like I said, I wanted to tell you these stories. But there's another reason, too, which is cool, if, okay. if I may. Yeah. All right. I wanted to show you some things. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know how much you love vintage T-shirts. Yeah. And I don't know if you like vintage hats, but I brought you a vintage hat from back in the day. And you <laughs> might have some of those, right? Yeah. That's awesome. You know how much your dad loved knives. Yes. Right? Loved
0: them every time it was uh, any time any it was a ceremony or or gift giving event or an occasion, Dad's very favorite mom, you know gift was a knife. He, yep. If he was giving you a knife, that was a sign of his appreciation, respect, a friendship.
3: It was, but. He always made sure if you were his friend and he gave you a knife, you had to give him a penny. Really? Because if you didn't give him a penny, that was bad luck. I didn't know that. It was bad luck. So every knife that I ever got, I had to give him a penny. And if I didn't have a penny, I wouldn't take the knife until I went and got a penny. <laughs> <laughs> now, what he would do, as he swore it was bad luck, he'd come up to competitors in the garage they say, "Hey, I got something for you. Drop a knife on their hand, in their hand, and haul ass before they could get a penny."
0: <laughs> That's I, funny.
3: I've got. A, great, a I've got story. these knives, and I brought them for you. These are Winston Cup seven-time championship wow. knives, and I've got three of them that have just been sitting, and they're really, they're just really cool. Pass them over, yeah. Mike. And I wanted you to have these. You don't want them? I want you to have them. Oh my goodness. So. Another little thing that I brought you, when your dad won the championship, the seventh championship, we were all in victory lane, right? Yeah. And we had these little sevens. We all held up for the seventh championship, and I brought you mine. Oh, wow. There's what? I, I don't know how many of those are out there. You're looking at them probably. Yeah, but I don't even know if they kept them. Right. Right? That's so That's cool. amazing. Yeah. So now – I was with your dad when he won the 1993 Once the Cup champion. And there's the hat. How many? I was with your dad, of course, when he won the 1994 Seven <laughs> Championship. Now, that hat, if you'll notice, is champagne show. Yeah, it is. Right? <laughs> now, the cool thing about it is that here's your dad in victory lane. See him? Yeah. There's me right there. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. So... Your dad sprayed the champagne. Took a swig. Handed it to me. I took a swig. I handed it back to him. He took another swig and he handed it back to me. And he said, "Ned, I want you to have this." He said, "Don't give it to anybody. I want you to have yeah. it." And I promised him I wouldn't to this day. "And I want you to have this." Wow. wow. That is the champagne bottle from His From the Wind. In the wind. In Victory Lane. Yes. The one and only one that was there. Really? And I never wanted... You know, somebody said, why don't you get him to sign it? Because that wouldn't make it as cool if I got him to sign it. It was just a gift from him to me and because, you know, I was there to help him. Yeah. And I've been wanting to give you that for a long time. How about that?
2: I'm, I'm speechless, man. That's an amazing gift. Yeah. Amazing.
3: <sighs> but I'm glad that I had... <laughs> <laughs> this is cool. I'm glad I had the opportunity to come and and share with you guys the relationship that I have with your dad and what he meant to me. Yeah. Because you know, you kind of look back, and I, I kind of there were times where I felt like I was stealing them from you a little bit. No. You know, yeah, a little bit. But you know, I've kind of gotten over that a little bit because <laughs> I, you know, you look at the times and they they were just different. Yeah. But he, you know, uh, I, I've got to know Carrie a little bit and love Carrie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've got, to, of course, Taylor and you and um, your sister. I'm just, they're, they're just all great people. And Kelly used to come to the games. I'd leave her tickets. And, you know, it was just, it was fun to be able to, to, to get to know the kids. And Randy and Danny, I, you know, I knew them. I knew your, mom, your grandmama and, you know, all these through him. It was just a cool, it was fun to be able to, to meet these guys and to be a part of it.
0: This has been incredible. I mean, you know, we've had we've had a lot of people that, that have touched Dad's life or been connected to him in many ways, but nothing like this before. I knew that when you were coming on here, we were going to hear some stories that we have never heard. A lot of times we hear stories that we've heard, but this is a new, you know, their version or or a new <laughs> version of events, and yeah, they clear up some details or some something like that. But it's awesome to hear new stories for the first time, and it's awesome to meet somebody that had such a genuine connection to dad the the person right. the the real man you know the yeah. real person yeah like i said he didn't let many people into that that world but he trusted you and and you repaid him with an amazing friendship um that i imagine he enjoyed immensely we had fun yeah we had fun um it's been such a such a good time sitting here listening to you man
3: well good i'm i'm glad i could do it i've been wanting to do it for a long time you know i've been listening uh I put that podcast on when I get on my tractor. It burns three hours really quick. And yeah. Like, man, I think <laughs> you would love to hear some of this stuff. So so when you're um,
0: – so hunting season's starting. Yeah. Are you uh,
3: – I was in the stand last night, and I've got two or three bucks that I'm hunting, and one of them came out and poked his head out and looked around right at dark, and yeah. he uh, – Went back in, but yeah, we've been bow hunting since uh, September 10th. No kidding. So, yeah, so it's been fun.
0: You stick around your property?
3: Yeah, I hunt my property or Jeff Foxworthy's, and you've been to Bill Jordan's, right? I have. And it's right, Jeff's is right next door. Okay. So if you ever head that way again, you need to let me know. So. Well, I'll come, I'll just come visit you. Oh, come on, and that'd wherever, be awesome. Wherever we, yeah, wherever yeah. we end
0: up is where we end up. Yeah, we, that'd be I, great. I got my bow, and that's about all I do is Oh, yeah, shoot me, a too. Bow. me too, me um, too. I appreciated. Dad's appreciation for bow hunting. He, you know, we we would have a, you know, we would go use our rifles from time to time. But yeah, I think the challenge with the bow is a good time. Plus, you can sit in the yard and practice and piddle in the lunchtime and all that. Does it? your heart
3: beat crazy every time a deer <laughs> comes out? You know, the first
0: several times it didn't, but the more I, the older I get, I guess, and the harder I, the, now that I realize just how challenging it is, I think the first times maybe it came a little bit too easy, and yeah. I didn't really understand what I'd done. Yeah, but now that I see how because we've got me and Tricks got a piece of property we've had for about six years, yeah. And I've pulled one doe, one buck off of it, yeah. And you know it's it it's really made me appreciate just how special and challenging it is. Yeah.
3: And so yeah, I always wondered if I could manage Game Seven of the World Series because I got so nervous every time a doe came in with my bow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Managing game Game Seven of the World Series was a lot easier than bow hunting. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. Um. For sure.
0: Well, man, what a treat! I hope I'm, I'm, I know everybody's going to love this, uh, Ned. Thanks for coming all this way to visit us. Uh, you're a gym, man. Thank you're you. a real. You're you're a real pleasure to sit and talk to, and uh, you've 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 uh, we've got a great, great, great show. Yeah, people uh, are going to enjoy it. They are. They are. Thank you, Ned. Ned Yost on the Dell Junior Download. You know, Mike, whether I've been in the garage, right, as a driver or in the studio as a member of the media, the biggest lesson I've learned over the years is that we are all better off with an ally, a friend, a partner. My favorite part of the download has always been the opportunity it gives me to connect with such a wide range of people. They love racing as much as I do. And it means so much to me that when we leave the guest segment, I leave it with a feeling that I can call each and every guest on the download a true ally. Thank you, Ally, for your continued support of the show and the entire Dirty Mo Media team.
6: We are live.
0: Hey, everybody, it's Dale Junior, and we're live here at uh, the Bojangles Studio for Dirty Mo Media and Ass Junior. Uh, the segment that we all love here on the Dale Junior Download. Me and Mike have been having a our conversation about uh, our dirty air uh, brought to you by Filter Time. And uh, we talked a lot about the uh, concussions in the car and trying to get it fixed and everything that we feel about all of that. Anyways, we've got some great questions um, from you guys that you sent to uh, Xfinity Racing on Twitter. and We really appreciate that. Love the engagement. Uh, We count on y'all every week to bring us some great stuff to help us make us a great segment, and you do it. Uh, So we're going to get it started.
6: All right. Question number one from 48 NASCAR fan. What was your most funny experience with a driver, whether it's during a race or off the track?
0: Funniest experience with a driver? Yep. Uh, That's pretty. That's
2: broad. broad. (laughs) It's a long career and a lot of drivers. Mm -hmm. Maybe boil down into the funniest drivers like Clint Boyer. Maybe we can isolate a funny moment with Boyer or something. Surely there's one of those.
0: I think – me and Clint hung out one time uh, down at my saloon one night. And we were drinking and uh, got got into the sauce pretty good. And uh, I was like, man, you I I took him up to the house and I put him in this theater. I got this little theater room uh, for him to sleep because it's super dark, no windows. And I was like, man, you'll love it. You will, you know, if you ain't got nothing to do in the morning, you might sleep till noon. It's so dark in here. And uh he woke up at some point in the morning, and I had him locked in. He didn't know how to get out <laughs> he was he was, He was locked into the basement, like he could get out of the theater, but all the other <laughs> i don't know why he couldn't figure out how to how to unlock a door, but um child locks. <laughs> it was funny, so uh but he finally got a hold of me because I was dragging yeah dragging you. my butt uh <laughs> yeah. all morning and not moving too well the next day but um so that was pretty funny, you know. I've had some great times with some of these some of these guys. Hard to remember a funny moment on the racetrack. There's not very many funny <laughs> funny moments on a racetrack, but
2: um, I got one for the racetrack. It's during the red flag. Him and Brakuslawski running into the porta john. That's oh, funny. Yeah. <laughs> I will
0: say um, another Clint Boyer pops into my head. So sometimes. So I'm pretty, I'm weird uh if you don't know that I'm really kind of <laughs> weird and so things just pop into my head and I just have to do I have to act on it. We were racing at Martinsville and it was the race I won. I'm pretty sure it was the race I won. We had a red flag and me and Clint are up front. I think Clint might have been leading, maybe I was leading. But we're up front and under the red flag we parked side by side to each other. And um you could I could hear pretty good i thought he could hear me you know judging by the the ambient noise i'm like he could probably hear me and so um I, there's really no punchline here but i just was uh acting i was screaming over at him and like uh yelling ob- obscenities at him <laughs> and acting like a deranged <laughs> lunatic um like hey man when this race gets back going <laughs> I'm just going to destroy <laughs> this place. I am destroying you and everyone else. Be ready. And uh,
2: and you're having to scream it. Oh,
0: well, I mean, I thought That's it would funny. be more. I thought it. I I screamed it. I didn't have to scream it. I, I know. I chose to scream it yeah. to be more psychotic. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's just funny. Yeah, that was pretty funny. I thought. I don't know, man. I was on. I had a. I had. I must have drank an energy drink or something. I don't know. Man. But I was pretty wired. That is good. Yeah. <laughs>
6: all right the spotter stan wants to know you've interviewed a lot of people for the download but if you could interview a pioneer of the sport who would it be and why
0: absolutely kale yarborough i was a big fan of his um i didn't get to see him race a lot but um i did in the early 80s right when he was sort of um you know he was still pretty good driving the hardy's car winning some races and um When I got to diving into the history of the sport and realizing, you know, him and Dad battling for that first championship in 1980, Kale winning three in a row in the 70s. Um, His little tiff with Darrell Waltrip there in the late 70s. There was some really – oh, yeah, I mean, you know, 79, the crash at Daytona, and he goes down, he's fighting with the Allison brothers. Um, I just – was always kind of fascinated with with Kale. He was this little stick of dynamite and and really nice guy. But you know, backed into a corner, he would he would come out swinging and he was kind of tough. But I, I would I would love to just sit down and talk to him and get to know him more.
6: We're going to go to the chat. No Vega is wondering if you know why drivers are the only ones who receive the champ insignias on their fire suits. Crew chiefs play a big role in drivers' success, and they don't get a championship patch on their fire suits. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. I mean, get, you. I don't know why you can't. Get your own damn patch and put it on there yourself, right? <laughs>
2: That's what we would do, right? Put it on there. Yeah. I mean, who's... who's You could uh, buy a Daytona 500 ring. I'm sure you can buy a, a championship patch. Yeah. <laughs> get, a, get get your uniform
0: and get you a patch and put the damn patch on it.
6: All right. And final one. Clint Allen is wondering if you're going to be doing any deer hunting this year. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, we have... Uh, I have one lined up. Let me see here. Yeah, I'm going to end this month, as a matter of fact um i'm I'm looking forward to it i don't get to deer hunt as much as i want and uh tricks goes quite a bit more than me he was just hunting this week on our property me and Trix on some property together uh we're gonna go together uh, at the end of the month again uh and i might be able to get in there in january and february but that's really not it, not that not that's not the best time to be going right now is when you need to go but we're so busy and with kids and school and everything else it's just been tough you know but i don't get to go as much as i want i wish i could go probably two or three trips but i've only been getting one in each year for the last several years
6: all right and that's it for today
2: all right y'all hey uh we could just say that man if anybody's wondering hannah just wasn't able to be here today so we you know If if they're wondering if uh, you know where she's at, it's just a week off, and then uh, to tend to whatever her primary jobs are, and then going to Oswego. Is that what it
1: is? Yeah, for some dirt car thing. Yeah,
0: some Morgan. They put dirt on Oswego Speedway, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So and so, uh, hey Oswego, if you're listening, we want to scan you for iRacing. Um. Anyways, uh, hope everybody's having a great week. Uh, Talladega man uh, was was a bit draining. Uh, physically and mentally, that was a lot lot to take in. Not just the race, but all of the things going on in the sport. Um, plus the playoffs and the championships kind of winding down. Five races to go. The Robles this weekend. I won't be working much till Sunday. I have a, a birthday party for my littlest, mm. uh, which NBC is kind enough to let me um, let me be a part of. So I'll be missing everything going on the track on Saturday. But um, that's when you got great. Uh, a great employer to be able to allow you to take care of your family and be with them during the important times but i'm looking forward to this race at the robo it should be pretty interesting and hopefully junior motorsports has a good day on saturday and and uh
2: yeah and good luck to connor daly our uh, speed That's street right. host he's going to be making his cup debut in the uh money team number 50 i believe it's number 50 Uh, But Tony Jr. is going to be that crew chief. We just want him to stay on the track and try to complete as many laps as he possibly can because I can only imagine the challenge of jumping in this car for the first time with barely any practice.
0: Well, I think if anybody can do it, uh, it's definitely a guy like Connor, the independent rear suspension, transaxle, the car, the road course. um, The IndyCar IMSA type guys will be well suited for this car coming out of the gate as a rookie never experiencing it before um so i think that you know at least he's got to feel kind of good about that it won't be completely foreign to him
2: and i tell you this past speed street episode where they had chase briscoe on the show and it was just connor and chase talking and and basically if you ever just want to be a fly on the wall and listen to two drivers talk about an upcoming race and how to race it that is a fantastic episode to listen to because Connor is literally asking questions on how to drive a race car and what to expect. And Chase Briscoe really gives some fantastic answers. He's like, you're going to get knocked around, dude. you you just get ready. You're going to, they're not going to respect you. And he just gives him so many pointers about the mirror, about, you know, the, uh, the, uh, what do you call it? The digital yeah. mirror or whatever that is. And um, so that speed street episode with Chase Briscoe, go listen to it. If you haven't already.
0: All right, everybody. Uh, appreciate you tuning in. Thanks for uh, all the great questions. Appreciate Xfinity for everything they do for us and do for the series uh, uh, and and the sport. And uh, you guys, take it easy, man. Hope you hopefully you have a good week and see you at the racetrack. All right, episode four oh two is in the books, October fourth, two thousand twenty-two. Ned Yost, what a great guest! It man, some great stories.
2: Listen, never can get enough of those Earnhardt stories, but what a superhuman being this guy is. Like, yep. I mean, like total stud, uh, really just enjoyed being around him. And let me also say, because I know you will not say this, but thank you for all the stuff you poured into the dirty air, because I think that you've had a lot of important points that, uh, that certainly taught us a lot, but also I think the sport needs to hear. So yep. I appreciate that as well.
0: Well, I kind of, it's uncomfortable for me to talk about it because I'm not, I, I, I don't come with a lot of answers, but I just know that uh, through my experiences, it's, I, I do have some. I, I do feel like that we, we could get better, and and I know that NASCAR wants to get better. I know they do, uh, and and I'm eager for 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 that improvement, uh, especially for uh, for the drivers, uh, and the sports future, man. So, anyways, I mean, I'm not even done driving these race cars yet, That's right? right? So, I yeah. mean, so it's uh, it's it's something very close to my close to me and close to my heart. But anyways, uh. Great show. Thanks, Ned, for, for coming out here and sharing with us all of your experiences. And I hope everybody has a great week. It's uh, Roval this weekend. That's right. Yeah. I can't wait to to get up in that booth and get with my booth mates. And, and we've just got a few races left. I mean, we're grinding right through this playoffs uh, uh, system. And it's uh, – it's a load, man. We are under a lot of pressure, and everybody is working hard. But it'll be, it'll be here and gone before you know it. And uh, we'll be into the off season, not knowing what to do with ourselves. So, but we might as well enjoy while it's
2: happening, right, Mike? That's right, buddy. Uh, right. Have a good week, man. And thanks to everybody for listening. All right, we'll see you.
0: Check out Dirty Mode Media on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok.
4: Instagram.